Namaskaram. Uh, today I'm going to be talking about verse 12 of Uludhunapadu. Um, uh, just to recap, this, there's a series of four verses in Uludhunapadu that are specifically talk, dealing with um, questions of knowledge and ignorance, verses 10, 11, 12, and 13. Um, just as a quick reminder, what Bhagavan said in verse 10 is, um, without ignorance, knowledge does not exist. Without knowledge, that ignorance does not exist. Only the knowledge that knows oneself, who is the first, as to whom are that knowledge and ignorance is knowledge. Um, the, the word he uses for knowledge in this verse and in the next two verse says is Aribu. Um, it is, it, in some contexts, Aribu means knowledge. In some contexts, it means awareness. It, it's a word, but but in, includes both. Um, because it comes from the verb ari, which means to know. Um, so it includes both both knowledge and um, awareness, um, because awareness is knowing. Um, and the ignorance is ariyame, which is a negative form of aribu. Um, so when he says without ignorance, knowledge does not exist, without knowledge, ignorance does not exist, He's talking about knowledge and ignorance of things other than ourselves. Um, and then when he says only the knowledge that knows, here knowledge means awareness. Only the awareness that knows oneself, who is the first, as to whom are that knowledge and ignorance, is ignorance. Here we have a, a little clarification is necessary. When he says oneself who is first, He's referring to ego, which is the first to rise. And it is only to ego that there is knowledge and ignorance, because knowledge and ignorance here means knowledge and ignorance of things other than ourselves. So when he says the knowledge that knows oneself, what he means is uh, the, the awareness that knows the reality of ego, which is what knows knowledge, which is to, to whom knowledge and ignorance uh, occur. Um, and that alone is real knowledge. So what Bhagavan is emphasizing in all these verses is that the only real awareness is awareness that knows only that knows only itself, nothing other than itself. Um, so the nature of ego is to know things other than itself. That is not real awareness. Real awareness doesn't know anything other than itself. Why? because nothing other than itself exists. So when we know things other than ourselves, we are knowing things that do not exist as if they're existing. So that is not real awareness, that is, uh, that is only a semblance of awareness, what is sometimes called chidabhasa. Chidabhasa means a semblance, it's often translated as a reflection of awareness, but a more basic meaning is a semblance, a likeness of awareness. Um, then in verse 11, he says, not knowing oneself who knows, knowing other things is ignorance. Besides, is it knowledge? That is so, that besides, is it knowledge? Is, it's, 
it, it's, it's difficult to translate adequately in English, but the, the implication of this is that uh, not knowing oneself, sorry, knowing anything other than oneself, instead of knowing oneself, is ignorance and not knowledge. It's not real knowledge, it's not real awareness to know things other than ourselves. Knowing ourselves alone is real knowledge or real awareness. <clears throat> and then he goes on to say, when one knows oneself, the support for knowledge and the other, uh, knowledge and ignorance will cease. Knowledge and the other, here, the word ayal, uh, um, ayal means other, um, in this context, it means the opposite of knowledge, in other words, ignorance. So, who is the support for knowledge and ignorance? It is ego, because it's only for ego there's knowledge and ignorance of other things. So, again, here, when he says when one knows oneself, it means when one we know the reality of ego. In other words, when we know what we actually are, which is the reality of ego, which is the support for knowledge and ignorance, knowledge and ignorance will cease. Why will they cease? Because when we know the reality of ourself, ego will cease to exist. And since knowledge and ignorance are only for ego, ego is the support for knowledge and ignorance, without ego, there's no knowledge and ignorance of anything other than ourself. So this is the background. And then we come to the verse we're dealing with today. Um, in the first sentence, what Bhagavan says is, uh, Arivu Ariyamayum Atradu Arivu Ame. That means um, what is devoid of knowledge and ignorance uh, is actually knowledge. What he means here by knowledge and ignorance is knowledge and ignorance of things other than ourselves. When he says it's actually knowledge, he means that is the real awareness. So what the, the implication is real awareness devoid of uh, knowledge and ignorance of anything other than itself. It is just pure awareness, not awareness of anything, but just pure awareness, because there's nothing other than itself for it to know. Um, in the Kalivemba version, he added one more word before this sentence, which is an adverb, an Arabe. So uh, Arabe means, it means uh, uh, completely. Um, so, they, they, whereas in the, the original verse, Bhagavan said, what is devoid of knowledge and ignorance is actually knowledge. This Arave means completely. So in, the sentence then means what is completely devoid of knowledge and ignorance is actually knowledge. So the real knowledge, the true, the, the real awareness is only that awareness that is completely devoid of knowledge and ignorance of anything other than ourself. This is a very, very important idea. So important, Bhagavan, this is almost a verbatim uh, quotation of what Bhagavan had uh, a year earlier written in Upadesha India. In verse 27 of Upadesha India, Bhagavan wrote almost exactly the same words. He wrote, Arivu Arayameum Atra Arive Arivahum. That means only knowledge or awareness that is devoid of knowledge and ignorance is knowledge. In other words, only that awareness that is completely devoid of knowledge and ignorance of other things. 
That is, why does he emphasize it's not only devoid of knowledge of other things, it's also devoid of ignorance of other things, because it's only in the light of knowledge of other things that there seems to be ignorance of other things. Since other things don't actually exist, we, we can't even say that that pure awareness is ignorant of other things, because there's nothing else for it to be either to know or to not know. And then in the next sentence of verse 27 of Upadeshundia, he says, Unmeidu, this is real, or this is the reality. Um, that is that knowledge that knows nothing other than itself, but neither knows nor is ignorant of anything else, because there's nothing else for it to know or be ignorant of. Only that is only that knowledge is real. That is the reality, what is real is only that pure awareness that is completely devoid of knowledge or ignorance of anything other than itself. And then he explains why in the final sentence, Aribadaku ondru illay. That means there is not anything for knowing. That is, in the view of pure awareness, there is nothing other than itself for it to know. Since there's nothing other than itself for it to know, there's nothing other than itself for it to be ignorant of. That is why the pure awareness, the real knowledge, is completely devoid of both knowledge and ignorance of anything other than itself. Um, that is why it's called pure pure knowledge. Pure knowledge uh, means uh, or pure awareness. Pure awareness means awareness that is devoid of any content. There are no objects of awareness in pure awareness. There is just pure awareness. And that alone is what actually exists. That alone is our real nature. So, as I say, this first sentence of verse 12 is almost, uh, verse 12 of Uludhanapadu is almost verbatim, uh, that is, it's in, in this, in verse 12 of Uludhanapadu, he says, Atradu, what is the void? In, um, in verse 27 of Upadesha Undia, he says, Atra, uh, um, he says, Atra Arive, only the awareness or the knowledge that is devoid of. Um, so that what is implied in the, that is in, in verse 12, when he says, what is devoid of knowledge and ignorance is actually knowledge. The implication, what, what's implied by what there is, but knowledge that is devoid of knowledge and ignorance is actually knowledge. He makes that explicit in, um, in Upadeshundia, because they're slightly different meters. The, the, the words he could fit in were slightly different, but the, they're almost exactly the same words, and the meaning is exactly the same. Um, so what do, the, the awareness that is completely devoid of knowledge or ignorance of anything other than itself is actually awareness. That means that is, that is the only real awareness. And then he, uh, in the second sentence, he says, um, he says, Ariyomadu, uh, that means that which knows or what knows, Unme Arivu Ahadu, that which knows is not real knowledge. What does he mean by this? That which knows here means that which is aware of anything other than itself is not real awareness. What is aware of other things is only ego. 
ego is not real awareness. It's only a semblance of awareness, a chittabasa. Why? Because it's aware of things that don't actually exist. Being aware of things that don't actually exist is not real awareness. So ego is just a false awareness. But that even that false awareness, as Bhagavan makes clear in the next verse, verse 13, even that real, even that false awareness could not exist without the real awareness. That, that, that the real awareness is the, is the underlying reality on which this false awareness called ego is superimposed. Why is ego a false awareness? Because as he, what it, the real awareness is only the awareness I am. That's the awareness of our own being, of our own existence, I am. That alone is real awareness. But as, um, as, as, as ego, we are, firstly, we are not, we are aware of ourselves as I am, but we're not aware of ourselves as just I am. We're aware of ourselves as I am this body. And because we're aware of ourselves as I am this body, we are consequently aware of other things also. So the two defining characteristics of ego is that as ego, we are always aware of ourselves as I am this body, and we are consequently aware of other things. But the real awareness is aware of itself as I am alone, or I am I, I am nothing other than I, and it is consequently devoid of awareness of anything else whatsoever, because they, there actually is nothing other than itself. There's nothing other than itself for it to know or to not know, as he implies in the next sentence. What he says in the third sentence of this verse is, Aridaku, Aribittaku, Anyam Indrai, Abibadal, Tan Aribu Ahum. The main clause is Tan Aribu Ahum. That means oneself alone. Your oneself is awareness, implying oneself is real awareness. The, the other clause is, a, is an adverbial clause, a reason why oneself is real awareness. That is, uh, uh, the meaning of that, uh, the, 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 the adverbial clause, aridaku, aridittaku, uh, anyum indrai abibada means since it, implying since oneself, uh, shines uh, uh, without um, without anyum. Anyum means anything other than itself. Aridaku, to know, or aribittaku. Aribittaku means to cause to know, or for causing to know. So, um, the, the implication, the, the, this, the, the basic meaning of this sentence is, since it shines without another for knowing or for causing to know, oneself is knowledge. So it there means oneself. Since oneself shines without another for knowing or for causing to know, oneself is knowledge. In other words, oneself is uh, real awareness is the implication. Um, so, since oneself here means the, the real nature of ourself shines without another, without anything other than itself, for knowing or for causing to know, or causing to be, uh, can also mean causing to be known. Oneself is real, 
Aribu awareness, uh, knowledge or awareness. That's the implication. So um, when he says, but the word he uses, but I have translated as without, is actually a very strong word in Tamil. Indru means non-existent. It's denying the existence of, so anyam, Indru means nothing other than itself exists. Indrai means uh, as, as Indru means it doesn't exist. Indrai means being not existing. So since nothing else exists, that is the pure awareness shines without the existence of anything other than itself, either to know or to, to cause to know. Uh, that is, pure awareness doesn't know anything other than itself. It also doesn't cause anything other than itself to be known. It, it doesn't um, cause it to be known by itself or by any other thing. Um, uh, or it doesn't and it doesn't cause it to be known. We can also take it that way. Um, so the pure awareness is that awareness that doesn't know anything else and doesn't cause anything else to be known, then why is it that we seem to know other things? It is only ego, but it's only in the view of ego that other things seem to exist. And the cause of ego, we can't say pure awareness has caused ego. Since though ego has risen from pure awareness, we can't say pure awareness has caused any, has caused the arising of ego. Um, that is, ego has risen to know other things, but the cause for its rising to know other things is not is not the pure awareness. Pure awareness is just pure being. It doesn't do anything. It just remains as it is. So what has caused ego to rise? There is no cause for the rising of ego, because ego is the first cause, the cause of all other causes. That is, cause and effect exists only in the view of ego. Cause and effect is part of that anyam that Bhagavan says doesn't exist. So um, there, there, there is no cause for the rising of ego for two reasons. Firstly, because ego is the first cause. Cause and effect coming to existence after ego, when it's only in the view of ego that there's cause and effect. That's one reason. The other reason is if we investigate ego to find out what it is, we will see that it's actually nothing other than pure awareness. It has never come into existence. What has caused the appearance of the snake? If, if, we, if we look at the snake very carefully, we see, oh, it's a rope. It never was a snake. So since it never was a snake, we can't give any cause for why it uh, appears. Of course, we can't take that analogy too far because we can say, oh, the cause for the appearance of the snake is the ignorance of the person who misperceives the, the rope as a snake. But in this case, there's nothing, up, the, the rope itself is what, sorry, the snake itself is what knows itself as a snake, the snake here being ego. So there's nothing other than ego to cause its existence. And if we investigate it, we see that it never came into existence. So that which has never come into existence has no cause. Um, so whichever way we look at it, there's no cause for the rising of ego. That's why Bhagavan doesn't stop with saying, but, um, but uh, our real nature 
doesn't uh, there's nothing for it to know there's also nothing for it to cause to know there he implies it it uh, our real nature is not what causes that which knows other things that which knows other things is ego there is no cause for ego because if we investigate ego we'll find it doesn't exist and since it doesn't exist it has no cause um and then in the next sentence he says par andrew that means uh uh, there's no subject here. Uh, we can take it as it, uh, it is not. Uh, par means uh, void, uh, emptiness, dissolution, nothingness, or non-existence. It is not non-existent. It is not void. It is not sunyam. But it here is referring to what? It's referring to time, oneself. So what Bhagavan is saying here is our real what we actually are, ourself as we actually are, is alone real awareness, because there's nothing other than it to for it to know or to cause to know. And our real nature is not void, it is not a sunyam. Uh, Bhagavan adds, puts this here very deliberately, because there's a, a large school of thought in ancient India, namely the, the Madhyamaka Buddhists, uh, Nagarjuna and his followers, who said everything is void, everything is subhava sunya, devoid of essential nature. Bhagavan would agree, yes, everything is void except our own real nature, except the pure awareness. Everything else is empty because it's got no reality. It's, it's, it's just an appearance. It doesn't actually exist. So in that sense, it's empty or non-existent. But our real nature is not non-existent, is not empty. In so many other places, he says our real nature is purna. In Tamil, the word he uses pundram. Pundram means full, is a Tamil form of the Sanskrit word purna, which means fullness. So we, we, we many people, um, when they're trying to practice self-investigation, they say they come across a void. And does that mean that we are, we are void? Of course, we are devoid of knowledge and our real nature, that is, is devoid of knowledge and ignorance of other things, but it is not a void. It is the fullness of, of pure being, the fullness of pure awareness, the fullness of pure happiness, the fullness of pure love. So in no way is it a void, though it is devoid of both subject and object, ego and phenomena. And then he ends the verse with a single word, Ari. Ari means know or be aware. Uh, it, 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 it can mean know, know what is said here, or it can mean be aware of yourself, which alone is what is real. Being aware of ourself alone is real awareness. Um, there's probably a lot more I could say on this verse, but that's all that comes to mind at the moment, explaining sentence by sentence. But there's a huge amount of implication in these verses if we think about it uh, carefully. Because what Bhagavan is, is, is repeatedly emphasizing is that real, there is nothing other than ourself for us to know. So knowing ourself as pure awareness, awareness devoid of anything other than ourself, that alone is real awareness. As he says, for example, in verse 16 of Upadeshundia, Belivide Engale Vittu, leaving the external phenomena, 
That means leaving everything up above ourselves. Manam tanoli uru ordele, the mind investigating or knowing its own form of light, that its own um, chitswarupa, its own real nature of pure aware of awareness. That alone is ummayunachi. Ummayunachi means uh, real awareness. So he he repeats this so in so many ways. What we actually are is just pure awareness. In the view of pure awareness, there's nothing other than itself. Because other things seem to exist only in the ignorant view of ego. What actually exists is only uh, pure awareness, which is our real nature. So, uh, are there any questions on this first? Does anyone have any questions? Well, thank you, Michael. Um, so, there are five sentences in this verse. I posted them all. Um, so please review that. And if you have any questions pertaining to this verse, um, please post on the chat box. There and is... I'll post it to Michael in the order received. I just um, saw one chat. One, one message just came up now. I, I think it was from... Um... Uh, from from lean yeah can i just ask one question pertaining to this verse before i get there, okay Michael? okay um so on the um in the verse i was looking at the word the word paul paul in in common tamil the way i understand is sort of waste yes Paul, which you know that it's like something that just goes waste yeah dissolution um, and uh, yeah so does that apply also because here you're using it in the sense of something that doesn't exist like sunya yeah right and that was also a meaning that was given but uh will that apply also like some waste paul under yes yes just... it's not it's not uh, that that is waste in the sense of a dissolution supposing hmm. a a nuclear bomb has sit, has fallen on a city it's it's completely desolate it's completely destroyed by nothing there nothing remaining like that. But Bhagavan is saying, no, it is not like that. Though no. knowledge and ignorance of all other things, and the knower of, uh, of all other things, in other words, subject and object, everything is removed. It is not emptiness. It is not a dissolution. It is a fullness. He doesn't say fullness here, but that is the implication. He says fullness in so many other places. Okay. Then another question is, um, so I so I understand this verse. You know, it's it's um, basically uh, he's sort of restating verse twenty-seven of Upadesa Undia yes. um, here. Um, what is it that is prompting Bhagwan to say this again here? What is what is uh, I, I know that it's a, it's a, it's his philosophical statement, but also what is the practical implication for us? Practical implication is, so long as we are aware of anything other than ourself, we are not aware of ourselves as we actually are. Because what is aware of other things is ego. So long as it's only when we rise as ego that we're aware of other things. So whenever we're aware of other things, we're also aware of ourselves as I am this body. We cannot be aware of other things without that uh, identification of ourselves. As Bhagavan says in verse 4 of Uruvnapdu, Uruvam tanayin uluhu paramatran. If one self is a form, the world and God will be likewise. If one self is not a form, who can see their forms and how? So the very 
awareness. It's only when there are forms. Forms means phenomena of any kind. A form is something that is distinguishable from some other form. So, but so long as we're aware of forms, so long as we're aware of distinctions, we are aware of ourselves as I am this body. And what is aware of itself as I am this body is ego. So, as I said, the nature of ego is firstly to be aware of itself as I am this body, and secondly, consequently, to be aware of other things. So, we need to understand this in order to attend to ourselves as we actually are. Because so long as we are aware of anything other than ourselves, we are still not, our self-attentiveness hasn't yet gone deep enough. We are not yet sufficiently focused on ourselves. In other words, we haven't turned the full 180 degrees. We shouldn't be disheartened by the fact that we continue to be aware of other things. We, all we need to do is to persevere in the practice. The more we practice, the more other things will drop off. And when we know the reality of ourselves, knowledge and ignorance will cease to exist, as he said in the previous verse. So it, these, if we think about it deeply, these all have very deep practical implications. Because what is it we're attending to? If we attend to anything that appears or disappears, that is something other than ourselves. That is not what we actually are. So we need to attend to that, that same awareness that remains alone in sleep is what is shining now as I am. That is what we need to attend to. In other words, we need to attend only to our, that fundamental awareness of our own existence, not to anything else whatsoever. So all these teachings in Uludvinapadu, if we think about them and understand them correctly, they all have practical implications. They all give that even more clearly we understand what Bhagavan is saying in Uludvinapadu, the more clearly we will understand what the practice actually is. It's easy right. to say in words, oh, self-investigation self is just self-attentiveness. But what does it mean to be self-attentive? What is that self we have to attend to? When we start off on this path, we all tend to be looking for something, some object. But obviously, we're not an object. We, now we're aware of ourselves as a subject, that which knows all objects. But we're not right. even the subject. We're the underlying reality of the subject, that pure awareness I am. So quite often, um, uh, Vipassana, um, is, is uh, on things related to that um, are packaged and and, and um, you know uh, as 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 atma which are are related domes are used for it you know you just close your eyes you witness other things just be silent and so forth that is um, anatma vichara tending exactly. to anything other than ourselves is anatma vichara but isn't nothing that appears or disappears can be ourselves. That's why even ego is not ourself, because we exist in the absence of ego in sleep. Right. Right. As Bhagavan points out in verse, um, in verse uh, 21 of Uttar <laughs> this alone is the real import of the word I. Because of the absence of our non-existence in sleep, which is devoid of I. So devoid of I means it's devoid of ego. So even in the absence of ego, we continue to exist.
So we alone are the true import of uh, the word I. Ego is a mere um, a thief, an imposter, who claims our, our, our existence as its own. Michael. So now I'm going to read uh, the first question that was posted from Lean. Um, when I pay a full attention to a task, to degree that I'm not aware of myself or anything around me, can I say that the action I'm doing is done by my real self? And is this how I access my true awareness, just like in sleep? No, no. That is... When you're attending to something other than yourself, you may be overlooking your own existence. But if you didn't, if you weren't there, if you didn't exist, could you be aware of anything else? We have to be aware in order to be aware of anything else. And we can't be aware without being aware, but we're aware. And being aware, but we're aware, entails being aware, but we are. So. Our awareness of our own existence is fundamental. Though we may overlook it, though we may not notice it, it's ever shining there. It is the screen on which the pictures appear. It's like saying, um, when I'm watching the cinema, if it's a really interesting film, I'm not at all aware of the screen. But is that true? No. We, we may not recognize the screen, but what are we watching all those those two or three hours we're sitting in the cinema, we are only watching the screen. We don't notice the screen because we're more interested in the pictures that appear on the screen. But actually, we are seeing only the screen. So there is never a moment when we are not aware of ourselves. There's something some people talk about. Um, And it's got some, they've given some acronym to it, something like FAST or something, which had answer. But anyway, it's, it's a state, they, what is often cited, for example, a tennis player, when they are so concentrated, their whole attention is so concentrated on that tennis ball, that they cease to be aware of themselves. Anyone who says that doesn't have a practical understanding of what self-awareness is. Because who is it? How, however much we may be concentrating on other things, we are always aware, I am concentrating. People say, no, even they're not even aware of I, they're aware only of that. But how can you be aware of that without being aware of yourself being aware of that? So they, this is simply due to overlooking that is, the more we focus on other things, the more we overlook our own being. So, um, wait a second, I think I need to get the full wording of this, uh, this because there are many points in this. Um, where, where is it? Chat. Um, oh, yes, someone says it's being, it, think it's being called in the zone. Yes, maybe, something like that. I can't remember what it is, but flow, flow. Yes, that's the word, flow. It has some, I think flow is an acronym for something. But anyway, what they call flow is it, anyone who talks about that and seriously believes, but you can be devoid of ego by doing fo focusing so much on a task, that is, they have not done up Mavichara. They have not turned their attention with it. They are not familiar with the, with, with the, 
ever-shining nature of their own being. But though they may overlook it, it's still there. They, it is impossible to be aware of anything without being aware of ourselves, for one who is aware of it. So, as I say, that's in that the, the, these sort of ideas are put forward by people without practical knowledge and understanding of um, people who, who have, basically people who haven't, who have never practiced self-investigation. I'm just trying to find this this question from Lean. Ah, yes. When I pay full attention to a task to a degree that I'm not aware of myself, as I say, that's impossible. We may overlook our awareness of ourselves, but we are we 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 can never be not aware of ourselves. It's impossible because self-awareness is our very nature. Um to agree that I'm not aware of myself or anything around me, can I, can I say that the action I'm doing is done by my real self? No. Our, our real self, that's our real nature, what we actually are, is pure awareness, pure being. It doesn't do anything, it just is. That's what pure being means. That is pure. What is called pure awareness is also pure being. And pure being means it just is. It doesn't do anything. So our real nature, our real self, what we actually are, does not ever do anything. It just is. And is this how I can access my true awareness, just like in sleep? No. It's, the op it's, it's looking in the opposite direction. So long as we're focusing our attention on anything else, we're overlooking ourselves. We, we need to go in the opposite direction. That is driving our attention outwards with great, uh, with great um, vehem, great momentum. We need to, that, that outward rushing attention, we need to catch that attention and draw it back to ourselves and slowly, slowly train ourselves to direct our attention inwards. In other words, we need to shift our attention away from everything other than ourselves and take interest in one thing and one thing alone, knowing who am I. So, so focusing on other things is, is, is the very antithesis of self-investigation. It, right. is, it is directing our attention towards what is anya, what is other than ourselves. We need to direct our attention towards ourself alone. So to whom is this experience of being so absorbed in some object that you overlook your own existence? Turning our attention away from the object back towards ourselves, turning our attention away from such a, uh, fleeting experiences back to the reality of the experiencer. Um, yes, thank you. Can I add something to my question? Yes, certainly. Um, it's like uh, what I kind of meant is when uh, I'm in a situation where suddenly I have, let, let's say there is an accident and you want to rush to help someone, you're not thinking and you're rushing to help that someone and then people would come to you and say, oh, thank you so much for what you did. And you would say, I didn't, you don't remember doing anything. You acted in the moment, yeah. fully absorbed in the moment. And that's why a lot of people in those situations would say, I didn't do anything. Yeah, that is true. We, maybe we, this goes with what you said, that true awareness doesn't do anything. So yes, even yes. though there was an action done, 
but it wasn't done by the ego. That's well, what the thing is, in such a situation, we react spontaneously. It, it, and it's so spontaneous, but when we reflect on it afterwards, no, I didn't do anything. It just happened that it, there was the accident and my response was the auto, was the immediate response to that. But that is still, we still, all this experience is only in the view of the outward term mind. So it's not helping us to turn our attention within. Mm -hmm. To turn our attention within, we need to turn our attention away from all happenings, back to be, to whom do all these happenings appear? Mm -hmm. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Lynn. Um, Ram, do you want to go ahead? Yeah, so uh, Michael, two questions. One is, uh, isn't ego a reflection of the self itself? Well, what I mean by that is, what is there other than self? There is nothing other than self. So this ego element, it's sprouted from self. So we, we try to get back to the source and all, but first of all, ego from, came uh, from, from the self itself. Um, there is a second one, um, which is, um, um, the, the I mean, um, we, we talk about the first question first. Okay, sure, sure. That, that's bad. Okay. Um, if, if the self, as you call it, that's Atmasarupa, our own real nature, if that alone exists, how can ego be a reflection of that? If that alone exists, there is no ego at all. There can't be a reflection because the reflection is something other. The truth is, there is nothing other than Atmasarupa. But so long as we rise as ego, there seems to be otherness, there seems to be separation. Yes, ego is often described as a, as a reflection. But um, in fact, after it, it, among the post-Shankara Dvaitins, among the followers of the Dvaita, at some point they split into two groups because one analogy was said that is sometimes it's described as if the jiva is a limitation of um, Brahman, that is a small part of Brahman. Another thing, it's described as a reflection. But these are all just descriptions to try and help people to understand these things. We shouldn't, we shouldn't take any of these things too literally. Because if there's a reflection, that means there's two things. If you look at your reflection in the mirror, what you are seeing is not yourself, it's not your face, you're seeing a likeness of your face. So there are two things, there's you and the reflection. So that's still duality. So, um, so but really it was, became a serious philosophical debate within Vedanta. One school of thought were defending the idea that uh, jiva is a reflection. Another was defending the idea that jiva is a limitation. But truly speaking, it's neither a reflection nor a limitation. It doesn't exist at all. It is just a, that is, that's why, that's why Bhagavan puts emphasis on the practice. Otherwise, if you, if we go on philosophical, philosophizing about these things, we will be getting ourselves caught up in concepts and we'll be, that is so many explanations are given. Why are these explanations given? The, the ultimate truth is, ekam eva advitiam, there's one only without a second. 
And what is that one tattva master? You are that. That is the essence of Advaita. All the rest is... But then the, the, the obvious objection to Advaita is that that is quite contrary to our experience. Because in our experience, there are so many things. How can you say there's only one thing without a second? That's quite against our experience. Therefore, Advaita has to say, all this is just an appearance. Once you understand it's an appearance, you should then put it out of your mind. If it's an appearance, it's not real. We need not be concerned about it. But if you want to try to explain the appearance, and you can go on and on philosophizing, philosophizing. This is what Bhagavan called examining the, the hair in the barber shop, analyzing the hair in the barber shop. How many hairs are, are shorter than one inch? How many are longer than one inch? How many are black? How many are gray? How many are blonde? How many are red? How many are curly? How many are straight? How many are. You can go on and on analyzing the, the hair in the barber shop for all the time to come. But what is the use? What is that hair for? It's there to be discarded. So once you know all of this is an appearance, why should you be then looking for but how to explain this appearance? They're missing the point. The point is, first we are told there is one only without a second. Then we are told you are that. Then when we ask what about everything else, we're told it's all an appearance. When we are told it's an appearance, what is the appropriate question to ask? Then to whom does it appear? That is what Bhagavan asked. To whom does it appear? It appears only to ego. So how does this ego appear, then people ask. How, why is there an ego? How did it appear? Bhagavan said that's the wrong question to ask. First find out what this ego is. Find out who it is. Who am I? What am I? That's what we should be investigating. If we find out what we are, we will see there's no such thing as ego at all. So there's no need to explain what doesn't exist. Why, did the, why was the son of a barren woman born? How was he born? If you ask questions like that, and someone tries to give you explanations, you can go on philosophizing about the, the sons of barren women, overlooking the, the basic fact but there, there is no such thing as the son of a barren woman. The son of a barren woman is a logical impossibility. It's like a square circle or a circular square. It just, it's two concepts that are clashing. If a woman is barren, that means she's got no children. If a woman has a son, that means she's not barren. So the son of a barren woman is a logical impossibility. But if you start building up a philosophy about that son of a barren woman, what is the use of that? So 99.99999% of Advaita is rubbish because it's trying to explain, it's trying to explain, the, uh, to, to analyze and explain the hair in the barber shop. That's all to be discarded. Once we know but all this is, un, is just an appearance, but it appears only to ego. So the root problem is ego. So what is the reality of ego? The reality of ego must be the one thing that actually exists. So let us investigate this ego and find the underlying reality. So we, we can read so many explanations 
in the in the scriptures and in books on philosophy, in the Upanishad, the Brahma Sutra, the Bhagavad Gita, the commentaries on them, and the commentaries on the commentaries, and in so many other texts, so many explanations are given. We should always ask ourselves, what is the use of these explanations? Is this explanation of any use to me? Yeah, okay, to a limited extent, to say jiva is a reflection or that jiva is a limitation, that may be useful to a limited extent, but that cannot be the absolute truth, because if there's one only without a second, there is no jiva. The jiva is a second thing. So the, the, the very people forget the fundamentals and they look for explanations for other things, but they've already been told to just a, an illusory appearance. Why should you try to explain an illusory appearance? Got it. But that explains. That, that, that doesn't my... explain it. We don't want explanations. <laughs> we want to know who am I. Explanations, exc that is, some explanations are useful. I'm not, again, I'm not opposed to all explanations, but sure. we need to be very careful with explanations. Are the explanations useful or are they not? Does it help me to know myself? If I analyze all the hair in the barbershop, is it going to help me to throw out throw it all out. No, you can throw it out without analyzing it. So there's no point in analyzing all these things. Got it. Thank you, Michael. Um, Barbara, uh, do you want to go ahead with your question? Yes, uh, it's just a short question. Um, and uh, it puts an explanation, I guess. Can you say more about the word Shruta? Are there any schools in Buddhism, for instance, where it does have a performance? Sorry, I didn't catch that. I didn't catch the word you said. Sunya. 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 Sunya means Sunya means what is void, what is empty, what is what is nothingness. That right. is one of the words in Sanskrit for zero is sunya. So it means nothing. It doesn't exist. So there's no such thing as sunya. If there was such a thing as sunya, it wouldn't be sunya. So sunya implies what is non-existent. In the, I think the word sunya does occur. I, I, I'm not an expert on Buddhism, but I think that the word sunya, or probably sunna, it does occur in the Pali text. But yeah, okay. If, so um, there is some basis in the Pali text. But the, for the Theravadan Buddhists, the Pali texts are the authoritative texts, but there are so many other texts but the, the, the other Buddhists take as equally authoritative or even more authoritative than most Pali texts. But because nothing was written during... Buddha didn't write anything. And nothing was written in his lifetime. It was only a few hundred years later that the oral tradition began to be committed to writing. And there were competing schools already by that time. So each had their own version of what Buddha taught. Nagarjuna came much later. I think Nagarjuna was about the second century of the Christian era. So that's about maybe six or seven hundred years after Buddha. He was the one who gave a lot of him, who, who, who sort of, um, he dwelt very much on this idea of subhava sunya. Subhava means own nature. 
So everything is subhava sunya. Everything is devoid of its own nature. Nagarjuna's philosophy, um, Nagarj it, to all appearances, Nagarjuna's philosophy is extremely nihilistic. But Nagarjuna in, denied being a nihilist. So it's very difficult to tie Nagarjuna down. If you want to study philosophy, if you like to study philosophy, Nagarjuna is a great subject because he ties knots within knots. He, he came up with a tetralemma. Tetralemma means, uh, a dilemma means two things, two, two, um, two choices. A trilemma is three choices. He came up with a tetralemma and he denied all, all four elements. He said, it doesn't exist. It doesn't not exist. It doesn't exist and not exist. It doesn't neither exist nor not exist. What okay. sense can we make of that? I mean, it may be very deep philosophy, but is it helpful for us in our spiritual path? I mean, all due respect to Nagarjuna, I, I, I yeah. myself don't understand Nagarjuna, so I'm not a person <laughs> to pass judgment on his philosophy. But my simple yes. question would be, is it useful? And Thank ultimately, you. is it true? If everything is subhava sunya, if there's no subhava, then there's nothing, because we, there has to be something that has a subhava, or, or there's nothing. Thank you. That's very helpful. Right. I Thank don't you, know Mark. if it's helpful or not, but <laughs> it's all that's as far as my limited intellect allows me to go. Uh, this is why I like Bhagavan, because Bhagavan is so simple. And Bhagavan is talking about what is actually our experience. But one thing we, we all have to agree on is I am. There are some philosophers that even doubt that, but they, that is because of their convoluted thinking. But you have to exist in order to doubt the existence of your existence. So um, Bhagavan is so simple. He's pointing to the, the one most obvious thing, the one thing that we experience at all times. So that is the appeal of Bhagavan. He has simplified things. Bhagavan is... That, that as I as I said, even much of Advaita is absolutely unnecessary. There's so much in Advaitic texts, so many explanations, and people taking the explanations so literally. But they're, they're one explanation is competing against another explanation. There's some one group saying no, this explanation is correct, and others saying this explanation is correct. But truth is, neither explanation is correct because there's nothing to explain. What is alone is as it is. That is a dwaita. So Bhagavan has restored a dwaita back to the simple basic principles. And in simplicity there's clarity. The yes. more complex a philosophy is, the more it loses its clarity. If you hear this, supposing you hear that something doesn't exist, it doesn't not exist. It doesn't exist and not exist. And it doesn't neither exist nor not exist. Does that give clarity? To me, it, it, it boggles my mind. I, 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 don't, I, I can't understand what is the point of that. So, yeah. a, a, Truth, that is, truth lies in clarity. Bhagavan's teachings are very clear and very simple.
Thank you, Michael. Thank you so much. Thank you. And another uh-huh. thing about talking about Buddhism and Advaita, the big dispute between Buddhism and Vedanta in general, Buddhism says there's no Atma. I'm not saying Buddha said that. This is what the followers of Buddha say. There's no Atma. Buddha actually said something different. Buddha said, uh, Sabbe Dharma Anatta. That means all dharmas are anatta, are, are not oneself. That, mm. that uh, Dharma there means phenomena. So Buddha is just saying what, we, what Bhagavan is saying, but no phenomena, nothing, no form, nothing perceived is ourself. Um, but that is interpreted by the Buddhist, but there's no self at all. And um, the Advaitins say there is a self. The truth is both are wrong. There is neither not a self, nor is there a self, because there's no separate thing as the self. That is the very fact that people translate the word Atma as the self means they've misunderstood it. To understand the sense in which Atma is used, we should understand Atma is not a noun, it's a pronoun. It, what Atma refers to depends on the context. Just like, what is the meaning of it? It has no meaning outside the context. There has to be a context, then only any pronoun. I, you, he, she, it, even I. When I say I, I'm referring to me. When you say I, you're referring to you. So w- pronouns uh, have, a, have, um, have a, a meaning only in a certain context. Atma is a pronoun. It, if you read Sanskrit literature, there are so many places where Atma is used as a pronoun. For example, take uh, verse 16 of Upadesha Saram. Uh, Bhagavan says, um, uh, Drisya Bharatum, withdrawn from the Drisya, Chittam, the mind, Atmanaha, Chitvadarshanam, the mind, their Atmanaha is the, is, the acu- is the genitive form of Atman. It, it, in that context, it means the mind knowing its own, its own is Atmanaha. So that's a clear example of how Atman is used as a pronoun. When it is said, for example, in the, um, I'll just finish telling the meaning of that verse, the mind knowing its own chitva, its own nature of awareness, that alone is tattva darshanam. The mind seeing its own chitva is seeing tattva. Um, When it is said, for example, in the Mahavakyas, I am Atma Brahman. This self is Brahman. Which self is it referring to? It's referring to the self. It, that is, that is a, there are other parallel sayings. Tattvamasi. Tum is referring to one pe- the person being addressed. Aham Brahmasmi. Uh, that is, if, if, when the, 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 mean, the implication of Tattvamasi is Aham Brahmasmi. So that Aham, is what is referred to as I am Atma. So this self is Brahman. So we, but then people, some people come to the conclusion, oh, whenever the word Atman occurs, it's Brahman. That's obviously not the case. There's so many times Atman is used in Sanskrit to refer to Jiva. So, so all Atma means is oneself, or yourself, or himself, or herself, or itself. The parallel word in Tamil that Bhagavan used is Tan. 
Tan simply means oneself, or according to the context, it can mean myself, yourself, himself, herself. It's it's a simply a pronoun. If we understand that um, that Atman is a pronoun, having a philosophical argument about whether Atman exists or not is meaningless. What are you talking about? I say it exists. You say it doesn't exist. Without knowing what the it is, our question is meaningless. Atman refers to ourself, what we actually are. So if you say there's no Atman, you're saying you don't exist. So that the, obviously the Buddhist perspective is obviously absurd. But the Advaitins, rather than clarifying the meaning of the word Atman, they say, no, there is something called Atman, and Atman does exist. And we are going to fight to, be, to, uh, to, to our last breath to defend this concept of Atman. They're missing the point. What does Atman refer to? It refers to I. Do I exist? Obviously, I, the, the one most obvious thing is I exist. So when I said there's neither, there's neither a self nor no self, what I meant is the word self does not refer to anything other than ourself. Everything is itself. This microphone is itself. This PC is itself. I am myself. You are yourself. So what is the word self referring to there? We, we have to understand from the context. When I say the microphone is itself, self is referring to microphone. When I say the PC is itself, self is referring to PC. When I say you are yourself, self is referring to you. When I say I myself, I am myself, I'm, self is referring to me. So self, is, the word self, exactly the same problem is there in Western philosophy. Modern philosophy, they, they, they talk about the self. What is the self? That's a meaningless question. Uh, if they ask, who am I? That's a meaningful question, because we know what we're talking about when we talk, ask, who am I? But if you ask, what is the self? Which self are you talking about? Are you talking about the microphone itself, or the PC itself, or yourself, or myself? or himself, herself, itself, what self? So we, 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 need to, we need to go beyond the words to understand what underlies the words. Then 99.9999% of philosophy can go out the window. And the only useful philosophy we're left with is Bhagavan's philosophy. Thank you, Michael. And... If you like to think I'm a, I'm a Bhagavan fanatic, I, I, agree, I agree, I'm a Bhagavan fanatic because I don't see anything so simple, so clear, so obviously true as Bhagavan's teaching, and so obviously practical, because Bhagavan, it's not, Bhagavan's teachings are philosophical, yes, but they're a practical philosophy. It, everything that Bhagavan taught us if we understand it correctly, it has a practical implication. And it, without practical implication, philosophy is useless. What's the use of philosophizing without being able to apply it to, to, to some advantage? Bhagavan has given us a philosophy that we can apply to the ultimate advantage, supreme happiness, eternal happiness. Right. Thank you, Michael. Um, Robert Boyer is, is asking a question. It's actually, um, when he asked this um, a while ago, I, I reached out to you to respond. Um, 
and uh, you shared an audio message, which I passed it on to him. Um, so it's basically continuing on the same theme here. So I guess it's it's good to, for you to repeat the answer to a larger audience. I, I can't remember what I what right. what, what, what it good. was or what I answered. <laughs> so, so my greatest respect to to what uh, Ramana and Michael say, but I keep having a feeling that what they're saying is that to make the pain of the war in Ukraine go away, we should simply see that the pain and the war are unreal. Is that right? No. What Bhagavan says is, see what you yourself are. To whom do the war in Ukraine and all the suffering in the world, that is, death is happening everywhere. It's not happening only in Ukraine. Whether there's a war or whether there's peace, people are dying every day. People are getting disease. People are dying of hunger. All these things. It is the nature of embodied existence. Um, so long as we're embodied, we compete with each other and we we fight with each other and we have wars and we have um, and we have people hoarding wealth for themselves and depriving other people of wealth. We have. If you have a world where you've got people with hundreds of billions of dollars and a world with people with nothing. Of course, you're going to have strife and tension and injustice and everything. But, but it's the nature of the world. It, can anyone design a world and put, have a world in practice that is free of all injustices? Even if we had a perfectly just world, there are other things in life that we've got no control over. We can't, we can't prevent disease. We can't prevent death. So. The embodied existence is inherently defective, inherently unsatisfactory. But to whom does all this appear? Bhagavan, that is the teaching that the world is unreal. Bhagavan did teach that, but that's a secondary teaching. The primary teaching is that ego, the one who, to whom the world appears, is itself unreal. And we can we can verify that for ourselves only by investigating ourselves. Whether the world is unreal or not, there's no objective way of proving it. The world certainly seems to be real. It appears, so it seems to be real. But what we also we need to understand what real means in this context. If something actually exists, it is real. If something doesn't actually exist, but merely seems to exist, it is unreal. That is what real or unreal means in, in Advaita. So this world seems to exist. Whether it actually exists or not, we cannot objectively, by investigating the world, we, by investigating an appearance, you can't see whether it's a, an appearance or not, because the more you investigate, the more real it seems to be. But to whom is this appearance? To whom does the world seem to be real? To me. So if I investigate myself and discover my own reality, then I will know the reality of the world. Because the, 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 who is it who says the world seems to exist? It's only ego. It's only in the view of ego that the world seems to exist. Bhagavan often used to say, does the world come to you and tell you it's real? No, it's you who say the world is real. So the problem lies with you, not with the world. The world is okay as it is. The problem lies with you. You're the one who says the world is real. But are you real? You, 
the one in whose view the world seems to be real, is that one real, that is ego. So Bhagavan's teachings are all directed at turning our attention back to ourselves. Of course, when we live in this world and we see um, injustices, we see um, suffering in so many forms. I mean, anyone with a, even a, the slightest sattvic uh, nature will not like wars to exist. Wars obviously cause unnecessary suffering. So we don't like wars, we don't like pandemics, we don't like disease, we don't, so many things. But can we change these things? We cannot change these things. We can change ourselves by knowing what we actually are. So, of course, when we are in a situation, if, for example, if a hungry person comes to us and we have food, we can give them food. We can alleviate, if a person in a state of distress, supposing a person has been bereaved and they come to us, we can give them a sympathetic hearing, say some kind words. Um, so there's so many things we can, small things we can do in life to improve the life of others. But big things we can't do. We can't stop the war. Who, who can stop this war? Nobody knows that Putin's hell-bent on this war. And nobody knows how to stop him. Because if, if NATO go and get involved, it's going to become out of hand. So even these big... Um, the President of the United States, the, the heads of the European Union, none of these people can solve the problem. There's no obvious solution to the problem. So this is the nature of the world. The world is full of problems. And when one problem is solved, so many wars have come in the past. No war has ever gone on forever. Wars start and sooner or later they come to an end. And after uh, some time, some other war starts, or in some other places. I don't think there's ever been a moment in history where there haven't been wars in some part of the world. It's just the nature of the world. So can we change this? No, we can't. Obviously, we can't. This is just the, the nature of things. Can we change ourselves? Well, at least we can try. And before we try to change ourselves as a person, let us first know what we actually are. Then we can know whether we need any, whether any change is required. So what Bhagavan is giving us is a practical solution. During Bhagavan's lifetime, there were two great world wars. There was the First World War and the Second World War. There was the, um, the, the Russian Revolution, the, 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 the rule of, um, of, of, of the... the um, the, the Soviet Union, that, that is the, the dictatorship in the name of communism. There was fascism in Europe. There were so many problems. All these things happened in Bhagavan's uh, lifetime. But Bhagavan wasn't here to solve these problems. He was here to solve the root of all these problems. Who is the one who sees all these things? Who is the one who says there was a war? There was... Uh, there was communism, there was fascism, there was this fight, there was that fight, there, were, um, there, there, there was a big pandemic, that worldwide pandemic, the Spanish flu. There were many minor pandemics, even when Bhagavan was living in Turvanamalai, uh, on, on at least two occasions, the whole town had to be vacated because of a cholera epidemic. 
So epidemics have been happening, wars have been happening since time immemorial. It's the nature of this world. We can't escape these things. So we have to, we have to look for deeper solutions. Buddha was very wise. When Buddha was brought up as a prince, if, when his, um, I think the story is something to this effect, it may not be exactly, but this is something to this effect. When he was young, his father consulted with astrologers, and his, the astrologers told his father something like, your son will either become the mightiest emperor in this world, or he will become a great uh, tiagi, a great renunciate. So his father was afraid that his son would become a renunciate. He wanted him to become a great emperor. So he tried to shield his son from seeing all the suffering of life. And so Buddha grew up in a very uh, sheltered surrounding, protected from seeing all the, the harshness of life. And he, as a young, uh, young man, in those days they used to marry them very young. So as a prince, probably as a teenager, he would have been married to a young bride. And they had a child. One day, he went out riding in his chariot, and he began, and for the first time he saw old age, disease, and death. And this was a great shock to him, because he then understood, I have my beloved wife, my beloved child, but this, this, this disease, old age, and death, these seem to be inevitable. This is going to. This doesn't only affect the poor people. It affects the the kings. It affects the princes. It affects the princesses. It affects everyone. Nobody is spared this. So this is the this is the reality of life. Life is is a matter of suffering, and it's going to end in death. What whatever we do. So there has to be something beyond all this. There has to be some solution. That solution, I cannot provide that solution for my wife and son by remaining here as a prince, because I myself am going to get old, and they're going to get old. So that isn't the, the solution. So he wanted to find a solution, a deeper solution, a more meaningful, a more lasting solution. So he went out as a tiagi. He renounced his family life not because of his lack of love for his wife and child, because of his great love for them. So this is a great lesson for us. We, need, we, we cannot solve these problems of the world. We need to look for something deeper. And we are very fortunate that we have come to Bhagavan, who has told us all this appears is just a dream. It appears in your view. Of course, it's not. We're not going to help the situation by going to Ukraine and telling people, "Oh, don't worry about these bombs that are falling on your head. It's all a dream." That's obviously not going. Not a solution. A dream exists in whose view? Only in the view of the dreamer. As a as the dreamer, we always take ourselves to be a person in the dream. But the dreamer is not this person. Now, Robert is, is dreaming this dream, but, oh, sorry, the, the, the dreamer is now experiencing itself as I am Robert, but Robert is not the dreamer. The, Robert is a part of the dream, 
He happens to have a, a privileged place in the dream because it is Robert you take to be I. So you, the dreamer, take Robert to be I. You see so many other people. Some people are rich, some people are poor, some people are young, some people are old, some are healthy, some are sick, some are uh, uh, fortunate to live in a country where there's peace, some are uh, unfortunate to live in a country where there's war. And Ukraine is by no means the only war. Long before this war in Ukraine starts, see what's happening in, in Yemen. It's similar situation there, big country bullying a small country. So the, these wars are happening all the time. Ukraine happens to have caught the imagination of, uh, of us in the West, because the Ukrainian people are somewhat like us. They're somewhat European. So their lifestyle a bit more like we, we, we relate to them. They're more like Europeans or Americans. Whereas the people in Yemen, because they're of a different culture, we somehow don't attach so much importance to that war. And we continue to support the people who are their aggressors because those aggressors have lots of oil which we need to buy. So our standards are very, are all double standards in these things. Um, ultimately, everyone is seeking their own self-interest. But this is the nature of the world. We can't solve these problems. But that we can't, we can't, when you're dreaming, you see so many things in a dream, you can't solve both problems. But if you want to bring an end to all the suffering you see in a dream, there's one easy solution. Wake up. So this is what Bhagavan, Bhagavan shows us the way to wake up from this dream. When you wake up from this dream, everything else will cease to exist. As he says, when you know the the one to whom there is knowledge and ignorance, knowledge and ignorance will cease to exist. Why? Because the, the knower of that knowledge and ignorance, the one who has knowledge and ignorance, itself will cease to exist. There can be no knowledge or ignorance without ego, the one who has knowledge and ignorance. So all these problems can be solved by knowing ourselves. Is that a satisfactory answer or not, uh, uh, Robert? Rob, but the uh, you, it's going to take some time. <laughs> I know, Rob. <laughs> everything that you say is satisfactory, and God bless you for being here. And I'm just slow-witted, and I apologize. No, no, that's okay. And the very fact that we are all here means God has blessed us to come to Bhagavan's teaching. To even the little we understand, that is itself a great blessing from God. Because this is the ultimate path. Um, with, with slowly and steady, I think at the end of the day, with more and more practice is when what you're saying will just sink in. Practice, practice is the absolute key. Yeah. We and can't understand these things just with our intellect. But just clarity, listening to you, it's not going to help. Yeah. The, the clarity doesn't come just, that is, sravana is necessary. Sravana means, literally means hearing, but it means coming to know Bhagavan's teachings reading his teaching, studying his teaching, that's Shravana. Manana means thinking deeply about it. Both of these are necessary, but they are not sufficient. But we cannot get real clarity merely from Shravana or Manana. But Nidityasana, the actual practice of turning our attention within, is the key to clearly understanding Bhagavan's teachings. Because the, the source of all clarity 
the light of is the light of awareness that is ever shining in our heart, the light of pure awareness that is ever shining in our heart as our own being, I am. So the more we turn our attention within, the more we are bathing our mind in clarity, so to speak, so the clearer all these things will become. This is why, if we are following Bhagavan's path, we may be studying the same text time and time and time again. For example, it's now um, 23, it's now, um, it's now nearly 47 years since I came to Bhagavan. Since that time, I've been studying Nana, I've been studying Olutunaptu, I've been studying Aranachastutipanchikam, all Upadeshundir, Anmavide, all these. There aren't many texts, there are very few texts. I have been studying these for nearly 50 years now. But I'm still learning from them. Why? Because the deeper we go in the practice, the more meaningful these things will become. If you're given a map, and you start on a journey. But before the journey, you can you can read the map and you get a vague idea of there's, <laughs> here, there's a forest here, there's a river here. But it, the map isn't so meaningful to you when you've never been to that country. When you go to the country, when you begin to recognize, oh, this forest is that forest on the map. This is the river. This is what it looks like. The whole the map becomes more and more meaningful to you, the more familiar you become with the place. Exactly the same with Bhagavan teaching. The more we become familiar with going within, the clearer and more obvious Bhagavan's teachings become to us. And the more the, the greater will be our conviction. Conviction is what is meant by the Sanskrit word sraddha. Sraddha is often translated as faith. It is faith in a sense, but it's not a blind faith. It's a faith born of clarity. And that clarity comes from the practice. So if you want to have real faith, real conviction in Bhagavan's teachings, we have to put them into practice. Because it's only from the practice that we will clear, be able to clearly understand and be firmly convinced of the truth of what Bhagavan is teaching us. Right. Thank you, Michael. So, and I have a couple more questions and we'll adjourn after that. Um, this is um, related to practice from Lakshmi. How does one focus away from material life and look inward for some time in a day while the lifestyle is such that we have to focus on what one owns and what one knows about the world, how one looks and how involved he or she is in the society and family? Once we turn away from what's happening, what's happening is negligible and difficult to come back to. So I'll, I'll just read the first sentence again, because that pretty much summarizes it. How does one focus away from material life and look inward for some time in a day while the life is so busy? Right. Okay. We, we need not worry about focusing away. We need not... We need not be worried about uh, trying, we, we need not try to give up thinking or to give up attending to the world. All we need to do is to try more and more to attend to ourselves. To the extent to which we attend to ourselves, our attention will automatically be withdrawn from other things. But more to the extent to which we take an interest in knowing who am I, we will lose interest in other things. So Bhagavan's path is a very positive path. 
Bhagavan's path is not neti-neti. Of course, we need neti-neti, we need to understand but this body and mind and so on are not ourselves. That's just the preliminaries. But the actual practice is not neti-neti, but iti-iti, this-this. That is, it. Um, but Bhagavan himself said, the, the practical way is not neti-neti, but iti-iti. Iti means thus-thus. That's referring, he, what Bhagavan meant by that is, we have to be positive. We have to, if we try to know who am I, the more we, the more we, we practice being self-attentive, the more the love to be self-attentive will grow, the more interest we will, true interest we will take in knowing and being what we actually are. So the interest in other things will automatically diminish. If we try to forcibly give up our interest in other things, it's not going to work. If you try to forcibly give up thoughts, it's not going to work. But that is, if you just try and give up thoughts, you're going to end up in layer. That's no use at all. Every day when we fall asleep, we give up thoughts. So that's not a big deal. How to give up your concern about the world? Fall asleep. But the next morning you're going to wake up with all the old concerns and worries. So the practical way is not to try and push away the world. The practical way is to go within. To the extent to which we go within, we will we will lose interest in the world. And not only will we lose interest in the world, to the extent to which we go within, we will, we will clearly recognize that there is a higher power that is driving this world. As Bhagavan says, when that one Parameshwara Shakti is driving all Kariyas, why should we, instead of yielding ourselves to it, be constantly thinking it's necessary to do like this, it's necessary to do like that? That's what Bhagavan says in the 13th paragraph of Nana, before giving his famous analogy of a passenger on the train carrying his luggage on his head. So, the, um, just like the train is carrying the whole burden, whether you put, carry your luggage on your head or put it aside, the train is carrying the burden. God is carrying the whole burden of the world. God is taking care of you. God is taking care of your family. God is taking care of your career. God is taking care of everything. So why don't you just hand over all concern about these things to him and hold on to him in your heart? Because he's ever shining in your heart as I. So but it is a matter of, of diverting our interest back towards ourselves. The more interest we take in knowing who am I, the less we will be concerned about other things. Because the more we will recognize that other things are taking care of themselves, or Bhagavan is taking care of them. Things are happening as they're meant to happen, as directed by him. He is the one Parameshwara Shakti that is driving all these careers. So we leave just it find to him. Time. We just find time here and there to just keep, keep at it, you know, a little at a time. Whenever yes, possible, yes. and then continue the practice. Yes, yes. I, um, I mean, we all have, we, when we come to this path, we all have very strong Vishaya Vasanas. And after we've been following this path for 50 years, we seem, our Vishaya Vasanas seem to be as, a, as a, getting on thriving as well as ever. But yes. imperceptibly, they are actually getting weaker if we are following this path. But let's not worry about the outward going mind. The mind will go outwards again and again and again. As Bhagavan says in, in Nana, however many thoughts rise, so what? In the sixth paragraph, he says, so we are not to worry about the thoughts. Let the thoughts come or go. But to whom do they appear? 
We should, if we treat every thought, every responsibility, every phenomena that appears, if we treat it as a reminder that if none of these things could appear if we were not there, because to whom do they appear? They appear only to me. So without me being there, how could any of these things appear? So we should take all phenomena, all thoughts, to all, all happenings in the world, take everything to be a reminder of our own existence. And in that way, we slowly divert our interest back towards ourselves. The more we take interest in ourselves, the more our interest in other things will, will decrease automatically. That is, as the satvasana grows stronger as a result of the practice, proportionately the vishaya vasanas will grow weaker. Right. So we need not worry that, oh, I'm making no progress. The very fact we are trying means we are making progress. Right. Bhagavan said, perseverance alone is the sign of progress. So every, no effort we make to attend to ourselves can go in vain. Bhagavan said, even a moment of self-attentiveness is worth any number of hours doing any other meditation. So this is such a precious gift Bhagavan has given us. Let us cherish this gift. Let us try to, to apply this gift to the best of our ability. It may seem to us that we are, that our ability is very um, insignificant, very, um, the, our love to turn within is very, very, very slight. But even though it may be slight, let us at least take advantage of that slight love to try to turn within as much as possible. Right. Practice is absolutely the, that's what Bhagavan's teachings are all about. It's all about this very simple practice. Of being self-attentive. Thank you, Michael. So I have another question. Um, I have a question from another Robert. Um, you have said that if one turns the full 180 degrees, the ego will cease indefinitely. I have heard that when Lakshmana Swami was practicing on his own, he would spontaneously have the thought, who am I? And have a brief Samadhi experience. Was his um, self-inquiry not 180 degrees, or were the vasanas just not yet dried up enough? Who are we to judge about others? Why should we judge about others? Um, some of the ideas he says, like he's got this idea that you need a living guru, these are not in tune with Bhagavan's teachings. He also says some strange things about watching the I-thought disappear and things like that, as if the I-thought is an object and there's some other eye to watch the I-thought disappear. It's in, When we fall asleep, do we see ego disappear? No, because so long as we're awake, ego is present. When we fall asleep, ego is absent. In the, what remains when ego is absent, ego is the I-thought, what remains when ego is absent is only pure awareness. In the view of pure awareness, there never was any ego in the first place. So there's, to talk about seeing the disappearance of ego is, is, it, it, it's meaningless. It, sh it shows lack of practical uh, 
practical understanding. That's my impression from what I've heard about Lakshman Swami. But who am I to judge? <laughs> let let him be. Um, I mean, who, wh why should we be concerned about others' practice? We need to understand what Bhagavan taught us, and we need to apply it to ourselves. So thank you, Michael. Um, we go to the next question. So In Aranacha Ashtakam, verse 2, Bhagavan says, um, when, 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 when I, well, he didn't even say when I, because it, in Tamil it's possible to express things without putting it in a personal way, but to, to slightly paraphrase it, when I investigated to see who is the seer, I saw what remained when the seer ceased to exist. He didn't say he saw the seer ceasing to exist. Because who is to see the seer ceasing to exist? The seer is ego. Ego cannot see itself ceasing to exist. And what remains when ego ceases to exist is pure awareness, in whose view no ego has ever existed in the first place. So the, the Bhagavan expresses things in a very subtle way. People misunderstand this and they imagine they'll, one day they'll see the I thought disappearing. Has anyone seen the I thought? Has anyone seen ego? You first have to see it in order to see it disappear. But we seem to be ego only when we're looking outwards. If you look within to find this ego, it takes flight. There's no such thing there. So we don't see ego now because ego is not an object and we can't see it disappear. We can only see the reality that lies behind ego, which is our own real nature. That is our aim. Thank you, Michael. Um, Rabbi is asking a question. When you are in the zone or the flow state, you do seem to lose your sense of egoic self, the ego, albeit temporarily. Isn't it a glimpse of the real peace that lies beyond the ordinary state of being and involved as involved as an observer, a doer, etc. The operative word in that question is you seem to be devoid of ego. But who is it who is experience that experiencing that flow state? The one experiencing that flow state or experiencing being in the zone is ego. Ego is not an object. Ego is the experiencer of all these things. So it is, that's why I said earlier, it's people without, with lacking any, any clear understanding or practical experience, who will say like this? We can never actually overlook, we may seem to overlook our own existence, but in order to have any experience, we must exist. And we can't, we can't be aware of anything other than ourselves without being aware of ourselves being aware of it. Who is experiencing the, in that, that flow state, that zone? That is ego. So it, it's, all these, these things are said by people who lack practical experience, who lack 
deep clarity of understanding, a clarity of deep understanding. So um, I have, so I, I, I'm just following up on that. Murugunar, he he writes in this um, in a, in a lot of verses in uh, Ramana Sanidhi Murai, um, Sri Guru Ramana Prasadam, um, about his experience, um, you know, after coming to Bhagwan. Uh, I lost myself, uh, you know, this and that, and, um, and so forth. What is it that is describing it? See, if he, if he really lost his ego, how can you describe it during that state? Pay close attention to what Bhagavan says in verse 8 of, sorry, verse 2 of Arunacha Ashtakam. Mm -hmm. He first says, uh, when I when I saw within the mind what, who the seer is, I saw what remained when the seer ceased to exist. Now the mind doesn't rise to say, I see. How can it rise to say, I didn't see? So the, the, it's, what Bhagavan is making clear there, it's ineffable. And then he says, um, in ancient times, you shone to, to make to to reveal to to say this without saying it to reveal this without revealing it that is it cannot be adequately expressed in words but as poets bhagavan and murugana um express it in words as much as possible but of course there's a limitation and also what one thing people don't understand about um um, Murugana, people often say, oh, Murugana wrote so much about his experience, so why shouldn't others write about their experience? Anyone who says Murugana is writing about his experience hasn't understood what Murugana is writing about. Murugana is writing about Bhagavan's grace. That's the references he yeah. makes to himself is about how this worthless dog was swallowed by his grace. He, it's all a praise of Bhagavan's grace. He's not writing about himself. I experienced this. I saw myself. It's not that at all. It was swallowed. He swallowed me. That is, it's all about his own, how Bhagavan's grace completely took possession of him. Michael, who is there to experience the happiness or the bliss in Satchidananda, for example, when there is... Who can experience Satchidananda other than Satchidananda? Because Satchidananda is chit, it experiences it. Because it's ananda, it experiences it as bliss. And what is Satchidananda? You are that. So know yourself as you actually are, and all your questions about it will be answered. Until then, we're just talking words. We're trying to understand with our, with our intellect, with our, 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 this conceptual faculty, that which is beyond all concepts. So the ultimate answer to all questions is know who you are and all these, all these questions will be answered. So can there be a temporary 
samadhi state. Yeah. <laughs> samadhi is by that is the vast majority of samadhi states are temporary. The only samadhi that is eternal is Sahaja Samadhi. All other samadhis are by their very nature temporary because they're manolaya. Oh, not even all, we can't even say all certain types of, of samadhi are manolaya. The, deep, the deeper types, that, that is the Kevala Nirvikalpa Samadhi. But many samadhi states are Savikalpa. It's still the mind is still operating there, it's in some sort of a state. But all states of mind are temporary. So some, any samadhi other than Sahaja Samadhi is by definition temporary. Sahaja Samadhi is eternal, which means it's here and now. Samadhi, Sahaja Samadhi is our real state, our natural state. So all we have to do is to turn within and experience it here and now by holding on to our own being. Right. Thank you. The Michael. word samadhi is a it's a, it's a word that is used to refer to so many different things. It's really firstly, it's not a word that is native to Advaita philosophy. Advaita philosophy is not concerned with states of mind. It, Advaita philosophy is concerned with the one real state that underlies all passing states. So um so, samadhi can it's a word that is used to refer to so many different types of states. Um, if it's a nivikalpa samadhi, that's manolaya. If it's a savikalpa samadhi, that's uh, the mind is there. But they describe so many different types of, of savikalpa samadhi, nivikalpa samadhi, all these things. And who knows what they're talking about? Everyone is talking about different things. So it's really not a very helpful term. Yeah. Um, I, so even though... And um, we don't Mark come Shankara, to Bhagavan to know about Samadhi. We come to Bhagavan yeah. to know who am I. One thing, I is one thing we always know. That's all Bhagavan. Know I properly, that's all. You don't need to know anything else. One thing I never understood is... Um, even though in Brahma Sutra, Sadi Shankara has completely, you know, criticized and, and broken down the yoga philosophy of Patanjali, the still so-called Advaitins just keep going back to that, you know, going back to that, going back to those terms and just, just dwell in it. Well, if you, at least the first step is, you know, if you're trying to practice Advaita, just move away from it. Just at least focus just on Advaita. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and, uh, he allots a whole section in Brahma Sutra just, just completely demolishing um, the yoga philosophy of Padanjali's. Okay, know. well, you're, you're more learned than me. I, I have never read, um, <laughs> uh, I've it's never been attempted to read the Brahma Sutra Bhashya. Um, so I don't know why we need to even go back and visit all those terms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are a lot of people who put one foot there, one foot here. This, just, is, just this is to here. do with the fact that most Advaitins, most so-called Advaitins, have lost sight, have failed to understand what the practical implication of Advaita is. So when they're asked about practice, they say, oh, the yoga practice is very useful because yoga practice, you can, you can control the thoughts. But Bhagavan said this Chittavriti Narodaha, it can only result in Manolaya. It can't Sastra Vasana. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, 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 so it's, they, there's no 
Bhagavan clearly emphasized in very simple words the difference between his path and the path of yoga. He said, in yoga they say chitta vritti nirodaha. That is impractical. The practical way is atman veshana, self-investigation. Because every day when we fall asleep, we we control all the chitta vrittis, and all the chitta vrittis stop. But what is the result? We're in a state of manalaya. A few hours later, we wake up again, and all the old chitta vrittis come back again. So, merely stopping the chitta vrittis is not our aim. Bhagavan said, "Don't be concerned about the chitta vrittis. No, to whom do all these chitta vrittis appear? To you. Know yourself." Right. Thank you, Michael. Uh, Sarah, go ahead. Thank you, Karen. Yeah. So I had uh, two questions. Yeah. I think yeah. they're they're linked. So um, I'll just ask both in one go, if that's yeah. okay with you. Yeah. Um, so my question is about my own practice. Yeah. Now, when I sit down to, uh, I won't use the word meditate, but just self-reflect, um, I start thinking about the I. Okay. And when I ask the question, who am I? I'm not able to silence, silence my mind as much as I can when I just keep on thinking I exist. So when I think I exist, I'm more successful in uh, keeping the mind silent. But then I fear that I'm focusing on the wrong thing because I am supposed to control the eye. It's the eye that I'm trying to get rid of. So um, is the ego the same as I and consciousness the same as self? Uh, okay. Um, ego, the word ego means I. Um, the word Bhagavan used is Sometimes he used the word ahankara, he usually used the word ahande to refer to ego. Ahande is a Tamil form of the Sanskrit word ahanta, which means I-ness. Aham mm -hmm. plus ta is I-ness. So the ego means I-ness, it's referring to uh, this, this I mixed with adjuncts. There is only one I, there is only one consciousness. That is, I, I is the natural name of consciousness. Mm -hmm. That consciousness in its pure condition, Suddha Chaitanya, pure awareness, that is our real nature. That is, our real nature is what shines as I am. That's the knowledge of our own, ex the awareness of our own existence. Mm -hmm. That is what we actually are. As ego, we are also aware I am, but the difference between ego and our real nature, though our, re our real nature is aware of itself as just I am, whereas ego is aware of itself as I am Sarah, I am Michael, I am Kumar, I am whoever. That adjunct, it, it is the conflation with adjuncts that forms ego. Mm -hmm. So ego is, Bhagavan said, it's chit jada granti. The chit element is I am. The jada element is the body. Mm -hmm. When these two are conflated together as I am this body, that is ego. Mm -hmm. 
So when these two seemingly become entangled, that is ego. But that doesn't mean chit ever becomes entangled with jada. Chit as it is remains ever pure. But ego is that conflation of when the two are seemingly conflated and they're conflated only in the view of ego, that is, that is ego. So uh, regarding the practice, who am I is a pointer. Bhagavan wasn't telling us to ask who am I. He was telling us to investigate who am I. If, I, if Bhagavan gives you a book and says, investigate what's written in it, you don't simply sit there asking yourself, what's written in this book? What's written in this book? No, what do you do? You open the book and you read what's written inside. Likewise, when Bhagavan says, investigate who am I, he's not asking you to ask the question, who am I? He's asking you to look within yourself to see what you actually are. So uh, the, Bhagavan has clearly defined what self-investigation actually is in the 16th paragraph of Nana. He says, um, uh, Sada Kalamum, always, Manate, Atmavil, Vetirapatu, Pataku, Tan, Atmavicharamendrapaya. That means the name Atmavichara refers only to always keeping the mind in oneself. In other words, or on oneself. In other words, fixing, keeping them. If you keep your mind on something, what does that mean? It means you attend to it. So, keeping our attention fixed on ourselves—that alone is atmavichara. That is our aim. If you find saying "I exist" helps you to draw your attention towards your existence, very good. You say "I exist," "I am." That's fine. We, we need to go beyond the, these are aids. We need to go beyond the aids, but it's, it's a very good starting point. That's mm. why Bhagavan said, if you can do nothing else, at least go on repeating the word I mm. or I am in a contempt, not, not simply like, a, like a, a mechanically, but keep meditating on, not on supposing you're, you're doing japa of the name of God. Supposing you're doing Japa of Bhagavan's name, Ramana, Ramana, Ramana. What is the benefit of doing Japa of the name Ramana? Because it helps you to remember Bhagavan. Hmm. So when you're doing Japa, you're not, your attention should not be just on the name, but on what that name refers to. So yeah. in the same way, when we repeat the word I, we shouldn't just be repeating the word I. We should be trying to attend to what is it that this word I refers to. So this is an aid to fix our attention on ourselves. But self-investigation is only fixing our attention on ourselves. These other things can help, but they, they are only helps. They, they are only aids. Uh, the key is fixing our attention. The, the aim of these aids is to help us to fix our attention on ourselves. So, so long as your attention is fixed on yourself, that's all that matter. Don't worry about thoughts. Let thoughts come or go. Bhagavan says in the sixth paragraph, how, however many thoughts rise, so what? Hmm. So, to whom do all these thoughts appear? No thought could appear if you weren't present there to, to be aware of it. So it's appearing to you. 
So right. rather than taking, rather than being bothered about thought, if you're trying to get rid of thought, or thoughts are there, I need to get rid of them, your attention is on the thoughts instead of on you. Let welcome thoughts, let any number of thoughts come, but please thoughts, please remind me of my own existence. So okay. long as we're remembering our own existence, that's all that matters. Thoughts will drop off of their own accord in due course. Right. And then and I Sarah, have... Sarah, this is so that I just want to add, I had the same exact questions you had, my dear. I exact same and many, many more. The more I listen to Michael James's um, videos and teach, because I cannot read Tamil, honestly. If I could, I would have. But the more I read, the more I read, the more I just said, I'm, I'm not even there. But it be, it's becoming clear, as Michael says, it just becomes more clear. Asking does not get us. Um, the more videos we watch, I, I, I guarantee you will, you will start seeing the clarity. And just, this is just me adding, Michael, sorry. No, that's okay. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I do have a follow-up question. Yes, I'll be very quick about it, I promise. Certainly. Okay. Um, so the other thing is that I also um, am able to, for whatever reason, think a lot, and think is the wrong word, think about the self a lot more. So that when I ask the question, who am I? Now, given that I have read all that I have read so far and heard all, all that I've heard, so I know that the I or the ego emerges from the self. So when I ask the question, who am I? I inadvertently end up thinking about the self a lot more. Now, am I jumping the gun there and just going from point A to Z instead of doing the, 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 the whole uh, walk? And would it be better if I were to not think about the self at all and focus just on the I? Or the real eye. Okay. What is this thing, the self, that you think about? The, the theoretical self, the way it's been <laughs> described in, um, you know, Bhagwan's teachings, the way it's been okay. explained by others. Okay. Uh, let me say something about this. First of all, there is no word in either Tamil or Sanskrit that means the self. Firstly, in Tamil and Sanskrit, there are no definite articles, so there's no word equivalent to the, and usually the self is written with a capital S. There are no capitals in Tamil or Sanskrit. The words that are used are, in Sanskrit, one word that is often translated as the self is Atman. As I explained earlier, Atman is not a noun, it's a pronoun. It but what it refers to depends on the context. But in a spiritual context, it's generally referring to ourself, okay. to you yourself, not to anything called the self, but to you yourself. Um, another word, Sanskrit word, that is often used, and Bhagavan uses a lot, is Swarupa. Swarupa literally, Swa means own. Rupa means form. So the etymological meaning of Swarupa is own form. But it's a word that is used to mean your real nature, what you actually are. That is also often translated as the self. 
But mm. Swarupa is so much deeper in meaning. And Bhagavan often used a compound of Atma Swarupa. Atma Swarupa means the real nature of oneself. Mm. Whether he said Swarupa or Atma Swarupa, it, the meaning is the same. Unless, of course, he's talking, in some context, he talks about the manatin sarupam, the very nature of the mind. That's different. But generally, when he uses the word swarupa on its own, it means atma swarupa, the swarupa of ourselves. In Tamil, he used the word tan. Tan, like atman, is a pronoun, it means oneself. Mm. It, but it, oneself, it can refer to yourself, himself, herself, itself, myself, any, it, it depends on the context. So, this, I always used to be puzzled about this word because this word, the self, occurs not only in English books on Bhagavan's teachings, but in translations of the Bhagavad Gita, in Vivekananda's writing, in anything, in, um, Almost any book you read about Vedanta philosophy or even about yoga, this word the self, the self, the self with a capital S. So what is this thing, the self? What does it actually mean? To me, it, it, it seemed to be it seemed to be reifying, pointing out as if there's something called the self. There is no thing called the self. What you are trying to know is you yourself. What are you? Okay. So when we, when we hear this word self, it naturally suggests something other than ourself. Oh, I don't know the self. But Bhagavan says, the one thing we always know is ourself. But the one thing that is clearer than anything else is ourself. In, in the song Arma Vigde, Murugana says, uh, in the Anupalavi, in the in the, uh, uh, um, the, the, the follow-on refrain, um, post-refrain, we can say, he says, uh, uh, Atman, oneself, is so clear, even to the most ignorant person, but even having even the, uh, an analogy that is often used in Indian languages, in Tamil they say, um, uh, 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 the amalaka fruit in the hand. Amalaka fruit is a, it's a small, um, sort of grape sized fruit. So that's often used to, to express something that's very clear. It's as clear as an amalaka in the hand. Murugana says, compared to the amalaka, in, I mean, compared to Atman, the amalaka in the hand is, is not at all clear because the one thing that is clear in all three states is I am. Mm. So it's, it's so obviously real, our own self. It's so obviously known by all of us. So Bhagavan is trying to bring it very close to us. But when it's translated as the self, it's taking it somewhere, some the self, it's something other than ourself. It, it, it's putting a separation between ourself and that. So this word, the self, is not helpful. Wherever you see the word self, just think of myself. I, uh, I mean, you think of yourself. Don't think of any other self. Because it's only you. Bhagavan is, wants you to know what you are. Who am I? Right. Okay. Even to say the I is also misleading. 
do do you ever say oh the i went to the shop to buy uh uh, groceries. No, you say I went to a shop to buy groceries. We never refer to ourselves as the I. So there's no I other than ourselves. So but we keep it simple. I. There's only one I. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Has, so I've, I've undermined your question, but have I answered your question? Uh, yes. Yes, to a great extent. Right. Yes. But the point is, what you need to attend to is yourself, to I. You forget about the self, forget about Brahman. The very purpose of the Mahavakyas, why do the Mahavakyas say you are that? Because previously we were looking for something outside ourselves. We were looking for Brahman or God or happiness or knowledge or something we were looking for outside ourselves. So the Mahavakyas say, you are that. That is the God you are seeking, the Brahman you are seeking, the self you are seeking. You yourself are that. So forget all those other things. Know yourself. Right. Right. Thank you, Michael. Um, Lakshmi, go ahead. Thank you, Kumar. Um, Michael Ji, I wanted to ask a follow-up question that I was not sure if there was enough time. Um, so regarding the question I had asked, um, it's not that I am trying to do Niti Niti. It's just that it's like peeling an onion, right? Um, you, once you peel, or, or for example, um, say I'm trying to give my child some work to do or, or a new shirt. And I first say how disgusting that shirt is and how dirty and how nasty it is. And then now I tell him to go put it on. How, how will he be interested to put it on? Or uh, another way, um, for example, you said that, you know, the world is, the hair that's been chopped off. So that's um, having heard that or having experienced that, that it's basically, you know, it's a lot of trouble and you lost interest in the world. And then you are focusing in spiritual life naturally at all the things you went through in life or you know, naturally lost interest in the material side of the life. And now you are in, in a stage where you have to accept and you have to study further about your, it could be your work or your, um, or your kids or, or whatever it is, that you're totally not to do it. Like you're just not able to because you're already like disgusted, <laughs> feeling disgusted enough or, or that it's just not, you know, sinking into you anymore, then how do you focus in the material life, meaning uh, for studies or whatever it is, while you're not no longer being able to feel the attachment or feel, feel any possibility of doing it? Bhagavan never asked us to be disgusted with this material life. Bhagavan said likes and dislikes are both to be disliked. 
rather than trying to push away the world or rather than becoming disgusted with the world, let us fall in love with our own being, with knowing and being what we actually are. To the extent to which we, we love to attend to ourselves, our interest will automatically be withdrawn from the world. We don't need to contemplate the, 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 of course, at first it's helpful to understand all the, so because our mind has a great tasting going outwards, we need to remind ourselves all of these things are ephemeral, none of these things are real. But we are not, nobody came to know themselves through disgust. We come to know ourselves through love. Bhagavan said, Bhakti is the mother of jnana. So it is by loving to know and be what we actually are. Because what we actually are, that is Bhagavan. If we truly love Bhagavan, he is ever shining in our heart as I am. So it is love that will drive us to turn within. So long as we have feelings of disgust towards other things, those feelings of disgust are mental modifications. So leave aside all likes and dislikes. The world is as it is. We, we are born with a body. As a body, we have a certain destiny. Most of us end up married. We, will ha we, have, uh, we have husband or wife, we have children, um, all these things. None of these things are in any way an obstacle to the spiritual path because the spiritual path is not about rejecting the world, it's about turning our attention within. To the extent to which we turn our attention within, other things will recede into the background. We'll, we, the, the in, our interest in the world will diminish. But uh, we, we won't feel disgusted by it. Um, disgust is not going to help us. Disgust is just an emotion. But we need to have... If at all you want to be disgusted with anything, be disgusted with yourself, with, with this ego. But even that is not really very constructive, to be disgusted with ego. Bhagavan told us, now the, this ego seems to be the cause of so many troubles. But what does Bhagavan say? He says, look at it very carefully, investigate it, and find its underlying reality. Then ego will disappear. So it's, we, we should... Our, the driving force of our practice should be the love, the love for Bhagavan. And the under, with the understanding that Bhagavan is what is shining in our heart as I. So loving to know and to be that I that is Bhagavan. Is that a helpful answer or not? <laughs> yes, um, actually, the discuss is just to, uh, the word discuss I use is just yeah, to explain yeah. um, what, but, what but, uh, kids but, would feel to yeah. use, do something that they do not, they no longer like. Yeah. So I could relate to Lakshmi's question. Um, so if you, if you tell a child, a growing child, all oh, the world is an illusion, the world is an illusion, how is he going to get the motivation? To, to put in whatever he needs to put in to carry on with the life. Yes. So that's, I think that's what she's driving. Is that right, Lakshmi? Yes, that, uh, I mean, it's when you naturally, it's a shedding off, like how, yeah. um, say for example, um, an onion when it's uh, 
when it sheds off the uh, dead skin, yeah. it has more layers to peel for sure. But what's dead is gone. So you're when you want to, when you say that you have to go back and make it, nourish it back to life, it's kind of hard. It's kind of not possible. You, so you it's don't trying... have that. That is one thing we we need to have a a comprehensive understanding of Bhagavan's teaching. Bhagavan has made it clear, but if all these, all karyas, that's everything that ought to happen, everything that is meant to happen, everything that we ought to do, everything that we're meant to do, that Parameshwara Shakti is driving it. That Parameshakti will make us do whatever is necessary to do. So, um, but, but all these things will take care of themselves. Our only aim should be to turn our attention more and more within. The outward life will go on as it is destined to go. That cannot be changed. That is going to happen whether we follow the spiritual path or not. The outward life is going to go on as it, as it is destined to go on. So we need not be concerned about the outward life because Bhagavan is taking care of that. We can confidently entrust it to Bhagavan. And if, if we have to play some part, if we have to go to work to earn for our children, or if we have to take our children to school, if we have to um, educate them, if we have to help them with their homework, or whatever it may be, all these things will happen. This is in no way an obstacle, because the practice is about our being. Whether you're engaged in worldly activity or not, you exist. I am. That is the one fundamental. All our, whatever we may experience, the basis of all experience is our experience of our own being. I am. So uh, we, can, we can continue to hold on to our being and let all these things happen. They will happen automatically. The more we go within, the more we will recognize that all the outward events are taking care of themselves. They're happening as they're meant to happen. Bhagavan wrote this so clearly in the note he wrote for his mother. In the first sentence he said, Avarabha prarabdha prakaram adakanavan angangirandu artavipan. That means, in accordance with the prarabdha, Prarabdha means the destiny of each one. Adakanavan, he who is for that, that refers to God or Guru or Bhagavan. Angangirindu, being there, there, that means being in each place. It implies being in the heart of each jiva. Artavipan will cause to dance, that is, he will make us act. So, whatever actions are necessary for the unfoldment of our Prarabdha, we we, that means our mind, speech, and body will be made to do those actions. And then he goes on to say, Endrum Naduvadu, Enwichikanum Naduvadu. That is, what is never to happen will not happen, however much effort you make. That means we are free to, supposing something is not destined to happen. Uh, Supposing I want to become President of the United States, my destiny cannot stop me wanting to become President of the United States. My destiny cannot stop me trying to become President of the United States, but my destiny will certainly stop me becoming President of the United States because it's not in my destiny. 
or I hope it's not anyway, uh, but anyway, who knows? Uh, all sorts of surprises come in life, but it looks rather unlikely. So we, we are free to want whatever we want to want. We are free to try for whatever we want to want. We are not free to achieve it unless it is in our destiny. So what is not to happen, what is never to happen, will not happen in spite of any amount of effort. What is to happen, will not stop in spite of any amount of obstacle. It may be my destiny to be very to be very rich, say. Supposing it's my destiny to be a, a billionaire. I may not want to be a billionaire. I may want to give away my money. But however much money I give away, the billions will keep on coming back to me because it's my, I, it's my destiny to have those billions. So what is to happen will not stop in spite of any amount of obstacle. Iduvetinnam, that means this is certain. Bhagavan says it so emphatically. Ahalin monamayirake nandru. Therefore, being silent is good. What does he mean by being silent? Does he mean we should sit like a rock not doing anything? No, because whatever actions our mind, speech, and body need to do for the unfoldment of prarabdha, he will make them do. As he said in the first sentence, and as he implied in Nana when he said that one Parameshwara Shakti is driving all karyas. So our own actions are part of those karyas. He will make us do whatever to be is, uh, needs to be done. What being silent means is not rising as ego in order to try for what is not destined or in order to accept, uh, 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 to obstruct what is destined. So how can we remain silent? Only by holding on to self-attentiveness and thereby sinking back into the heart. Let everything go on as it is destined to go on. It's no concern of ours. He is taking care of everything. So that's why in, 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 in something that Swami said in Pathasramana comes to my mind. Um, one key refinement that Bhagwan did compared to even the traditional Advaita teachers, is, is focus on the positiveness of the methodology rather than the negativeness of it. Um, you know, than focusing on the not this, not this thing, he just focused on the positive, which is yeah. what you stress, yeah. just, just focus on the beingness. And yeah. that, really look at the very core of Bhagavan's teachings, we need to be pure. That, that, that focuses on the positiveness. Yeah, and yeah, that yeah. stresses that in, 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 in Path of Sri Ramana. Yeah. I don't forgot which chapter, but it, it beautifully stresses that. Yeah. Many traditional Advaitins believe that you, in order to be, in order to attain moksha, firstly you have to be born as a Brahmin, that disqualifies most of us. Secondly, you have to be born as a man, that disqualifies half of the remainder, um, and you have to take sannyasa. So, without all these, you are not fit for. But Bhagavan doesn't. It isn't. Con firstly, Bhagavan. Whether we are Brahmin or non-Brahmin, whether we are male or female, this is only pertains to the body. It has got nothing to do with us. So Bhagavan is least concerned about such things. About sannyasa, Bhagavan's path is a path of renunciation, but he's not interested in outward renunciation. He, Bhagavan says, just like um, marriage comes according to destiny. Sannyasa also comes according to destiny. So certain people are destined to be sannyasis. They will be sannyasis. But just because you're a sannyasi doesn't mean you're a real renunciate. 
sannyasa is a formal renunciation, but the real renunciation, what is the real renunciation? Bhagavan has revealed to us in verse 26 of Uludunapadu. Bhagavan says, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Ego itself is everything. Therefore, uh, know that investigating what this is, is giving up everything. That is, their Bhagavan is being positive. Know yourself, and thereby you give up everything else. He doesn't say, first you have to give up everything, and then know yourself. No, by knowing yourself, you'll automatically give up everything. So Bhagavan is least concerned about whether you're a renunciate or not. If you investigate yourself, the renunciation will follow you. And what do we do when we do give up stuff naturally? When you give up, <laughs> you, you give up everything else because you're giving up the ego. In other words, you're surrendering yourself. But it's then not what happening remains, as... in the absence of ego, in the absence of arising, ego is arising. In the absence of arising, what remains is just being. So you don't have to do anything, you just have to be as you are. Not not a physical nothing, but you're just going to do your activities, but just be. Yeah. Yes, but no, um, no you, you know, don't do it... your activities. What yeah. does the activities is the mind, speech, and body. When you're just being, you're separated yourself from the mind, speech, and body. Mind, speech, and body can go on doing whatever they, exactly, they have exactly. to do. Right. Does that make sense, Lakshmi? Somehow, somewhat. If I may add... I just want to ask this uh, one, one... I want to put it in this one way. So, for example... Uh, a plant, you don't water it. It doesn't completely die in one day. It's, it slowly loses uh, leaves and fruits and, you yeah. know, at the tip it starts burning and then towards the end, then the root dies. So yes. when it's actually dying little by little, uh, I'm not saying I'm completely, I have given up on the ego, which is, you know, I don't see any, uh, you know, in my own effort, I don't see it happening anytime soon, uh, unless uh, Bhagavan does it. All. But then, you know, naturally, with the, how the life has been taking shape in, in my life, personally, um, it's naturally things are falling off. But then if I have to, like, I used to be the top in the class in education. But then now I have zero, I just can't get myself to, to, focus in something that my my friends or relatives have seen me shine in and they expect me to come back to that standard which i don't see myself being able to do i even if i try saying okay i'm i'm probably just convincing myself that i don't have an interest in so i go back and study and try to get there but it's just not attaching to me yeah. so when things are falling off on its own and it, I'm expected to be something. How does this and that kind of, you know, renunciation is, Bhagavan is saying, drop the ego. Yes, it's, you know, it's naturally happening in certain areas, if not all of it. So how do I catch up to that? Like, how does this and that come together in a normal life 
and the spiritual life in one one go. That is what you call the normal life is being taken care of by Prarabdha. Things are going to happen as they're going to happen. If you're again, if you're destined to study again and get still higher qualifications, or if you're destined to work, return to some work you did before, it will happen automatically. Or whatever is going to happen, it's already predetermined. We need not be concerned about happenings. Let what is to happen happen as it's going as it's meant to happen. It's all happening according to Bhagavan's will, that Parameshwara Shakti is driving all these karyas. So if Bhagavan wants you to, to return to study, or if he wants you to get a high-powered job, it will happen anyway. If he wants you just to get an ordinary job, or doesn't want you to work at all, he will, it's all decided by him. So you need not concern yourself with these things. All you need concern yourself with is trying to turn within more and more and more with the with the confidence, with the sraddha, the, the, the clarity to understand Bhagavan is taking care of everything. The clarity and the faith or whatever you call it, that, that he is taking care of everything. I I'm not saying this is easy. Of course, we all we all are concerned about our outward life when things seem to be in a bad situation or things seem to be going worse or something. It's natural for us to be concerned, but we should always be reminding ourselves: Bhagavan is taking care of things. Things are going to happen. Whatever we do, we cannot change what is going to happen. What is going to happen is going to happen. We can we can try to change it, but all our efforts are in vain. If there's some effort that we have to make, he will make us make that effort. So let us leave even that to him. Yes, of course, relatives will say, oh, you have to get a better job, you have to study more, you have to do this, you have to do that. They say that with all good intention, because our friends and relatives are concerned for us, so they'll give us all sorts of advice. But we should heed the advice of Bhagavan, that all these things are already predetermined. If you're to get a high-powered job, you're, it will happen automatically. If you're not, it won't happen, however much you try. So we need not be concerned about these things. All we need to be concerned about is trying more and more to turn within. Okay. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Thank you, Lakshmi. Thank you, Thank Michael. you, um, So we'll uh, go to the last question. Sudha, go ahead, please. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for um, taking my question. So, um, dear Michael, thank you. Um, you always mentioned uh, Shravana is a good thing, and then but you need to do Manana and then you know Dhyana. There's no point just reading, and there's no point also to compare, contrast. Don't worry about what Patanjali said, Mandoka, Mandoka Upanishad said, and all these things. You've got the juice already squeezed and given yeah. by Bhagwan with self-experience is very practical. I'm with you in all of those. Um, I've never asked such a question. You know that it's always been, how do I, you know, um, am, you know, am I doing it right and all that stuff? Like, like Sarah, Sarah and, all, uh, and Lakshmi, I had such questions. But today, today, just just because you are so well-read pious um and you are so accessible and i want to benefit and and i don't know why i'm going to just say it's meant to be 
today that you record this, I guess. Um, my question, sir, is um, just like pure water. I just want to drink this again. I, I am not saying I'm trying to be um, comparing things. Please, please. I'm just, it's not even curious. I feel like asking. I feel like something. Uh, it's, it's, I'm thirsty for your answers. Let me put it that way. So my question, would you mind just giving like, you know, very high level comparison between, and I think I already know, but Patanjali and Bhagwan's teachings and Mandukya Upanishad and Bhagwan's teaching in, in a, like a summary level, it would really, I, I love that if, if you're able to. Uh, Give okay. me the differences. Okay. Well, I, I, I'm not as well read as you may think I am. I, I know a little about some of these things. The, the, the Yoga Sutra begins with a definition of what is yoga. Patanjali begins by giving a definition. He says, Yoga's chitta britti nirodaha. That means yoga is restraining or curbing the chitta brittis. He then goes on to say in the next sutra or after one or two sutras that if you curb, if you control the chitta brittis, then you will be in your swarupa. That is not so. Bhagavan says if you simply control the chitta brittis, you end up in layer. That is not swarupa. And Bhagavan also says you can, the chitta brittis are automatically controlled every day when you fall asleep. But how does that benefit you? Patanjali gives a very confusing explanation because he then explains five types of chitta brittis. And one of those, I think so, this is what I remember vaguely having read. One of those five types of chitta brittis is sleep. He takes sleep to be a chitta britti. So that's very confusing because it, how can there be a chitta britti in the absence of chittam? There's no mind, there's no ego in sleep. So how can there be any chitta brittis? So it's a very different philosophy. It, it, that it, not only is the practice different, but a yoga is based on the Sankhya philosophy. The Sankhya philosophy is a dualistic philosophy. According to Sankhya, there are two independent realities. There's Purusha and Prakriti. Purusha is just Oh, but they're not just one Purusha, there are many Purushas, and the nature of Purusha is pure awareness. What they mean by pure awareness, it is just awareness, it's not anything else. But when, and Prakriti on its own is Abhyakta, it's unmanifest. When these two uh, come in contact, Prakriti uh, uh, becomes manifest. And then there are so many tattvas, but uh, uh, first, uh, the first tattva to emerge is Mahat, which is some sort of super buddhi, so super intellect. And from that comes Ahankaram, and from that comes all these other things. It's a completely different philosophy, because, and the aim in Sankhya or Yoga is to separate the Purusha from the Prakriti. If they separate, that is what it calls the state of kaivalya, of isolation, and that is the aim. But merely isolating ourselves from the phenomena is only a state of manolaya, it's not a state of manonasa. Bhagavan's teaching is, the aim of Bhagavan's teaching is manonasa. Manonasa means the permanent dissolution of mind. How to dissolve the mind permanently? The root root of the mind is ego, so we have to eradicate ego. 
what is ego? Ego is a false awareness of ourself. It's an awareness of ourself as I am Sutta, I am Michael, I am Kumar, I am Lakshmi, I'm whoever. Um, uh, um, this adjunct mixed I is what is called ego. This is the root of all the problem. If we investigate the reality of ego, that is, if we investigate the I am, in other words, if we attend only to our own being, the adjuncts will drop off, ego will thereby dissolve, and we remain in our real nature. That is eternal. Um, so Bhagavan's teaching, both the philosophy and the practice, is quite different to Patanjali. Regarding the Mandukya Upanishad, Mandukya Upanishad is a very short Upanishad. I think it consists of just 12 mantras. Um, uh, which basically are, it, it, it's a, if it, all these Upanishads can be interpreted in different ways, but Mandukya Upanishad is one of the most obviously Advaitic Upanishads. Um, it's very clearly Advaitic. Um, it puts things in a bit of a mystical way because it's talking about Om, about the, the four matras that make up Om, the A, U, Im, and the silence that remains after it. And it compares this to waking, dream, sleep, and um, the, what they call the fourth. The, the, the fourth is not actually the fourth, as Bhagavan said, it's the only existing state, but relative to the other three, it's called the fourth, although it's the underlying reality of all of them. So, um, Mamandukya Upanishad, it, it's the only Upanishad I've actually uh, read in its entirety because it's very easy to read because it's only 12 mantras. So it's a, it's a very easy Upanishad to get the hang of and to understand it. And on that, Godapada has written Mandukya Karika. Godapada is traditionally believed to be the Parama Guru of Adi Shankara. That is, Adi Shankara's guru was Govindapada. Govindapada's guru was, um, was uh, Godapada. So Godapada has written Mandukya Karika. Mandukya Karika, among all the ancient texts, that there's not so much, it's not as practical as Bhagavan's teachings, but philosophically, it's very close to Bhagavan's teachings. Because one point, generally people say, oh, in Mandukya Upanishad, he teaches a Jatavada. Yes, he points out a jata vada, a jata is the ultimate truth. But actually what he's teaching there is not a jata vada. What he's teaching is drishti shrishti vada, like Bhagavan. Because a jata says, there's nothing, there's no problem at all, there's no ego, no world, nothing. So a jata is not a solution to our problem. If we come to Bhagavan, if you go to a doctor with a serious illness and your doctor says, oh, there's no such thing as cancer, no such thing as heart disease, there's nothing, how that doctor is going to help you? So the doctor has to first acknowledge that you have a problem and then only he can help you. So Bhagavan and Godapada acknowledge there's a problem. And they both say, this, what we take to be waking is just dream. Basically, that is a, the basic teaching that... Um, uh, Godpad uh, devotes much of, of, of his karika to, um, to emphasizing that this, this, this world is just a dream. Saying the world is a dream, in the 
People say, oh, Drishti Shrishti Vajra, it's only a later invention. It came only in the, the person called um, Prakasa Swamigal in the 16th century, coined this word Drishti Shrishti Vajra. Yes, it's true. It was, the term was coined only in the 16th century. But more than a thousand years earlier, Go, what Gautapada was teaching was Drishti Shrishti Vada, because he's emphasizing it's all just a dream. If it's a dream, in a dream there's only one dreamer. And so we, we can, if we, re, if we read Mamandukya Karika, it's very clear what he's teaching is very, very close to Bhagavan. And he also talks, as far as practice is concerned, he uses a nice term. He said the practice is aspasa yoga. Yoga means joining. Aspasa means untouching. So untouching union. Yoga also means meditation, but meditation without touching. So what does that mean? When we rise as ego, we come into contact with these upadis. We take the upadis as ourselves. So we, in order to be, in order to, Cease rising as ego, we need to let go of all these upadis. We need to not touch any upadis. How to avoid touching upadis? Only by holding on to our being. So, what Gaudapada means by Aspasa Yoga is, if we think deeply about it, it has to mean the same as what Bhagavan means about Atma Vichara. That is, in Atma Vichara, we are holding on to our own being, thereby letting go of everything else. That is us, what is meant by Aspasa Yoga. So, in a very roundabout way, Gaudapada is also pointing at the same practice. So, among all the ancient texts that I've come across, I would say Gaudapada is probably the closest to Bhagavan. But it's, it's nothing like as clear and as simple as Bhagavan's. But... But why he had to write this big karika? Because in those days there were so many competing systems of philosophy. So he was a lot of, uh, particularly in the last of the four chapters, he uses a lot of Buddhist terminology. But he uses the Buddhist terminology to give a, a Dvaitic interpretation to it. People say he's a crypto Buddhist, but he actually is a Buddhist trying to insert Buddhism into Vedanta. No. He's not. He is using the Buddhist terms and concepts to, to, to argue for a, a Dvaitic, from the Advaitic point of view. So, but because of the time he lived in, it was necessary to do like that. Bhagavan lived in the modern age and he, Bhagavan kept things very simple. Bhagavan wasn't here to um, conquer other schools of thought or to argue against other schools of thought. Bhagavan simply came to point us way. It's up to us to understand the difference between Bhagavan and others. Bhagavan won't, Bhagavan, very slightly he'll hint, like about yoga, Bhagavan said, there they say, Chitta Vritti Nirodaha. Here we say, Atman Vaishnava, this is the practical way. That's all Bhagavan says. He, he won't elaborate upon it, but we have to think about it and understand what Bhagavan means. About the, uh, for example, many of many Vedantins are Vaishnavas, and they belong to what they they call it Bhakti Vedanta, and they say Advaita is devoid of Bhakti. Bhagavan repudiated that by Bhagavan's life is a life of full Bhakti. That is, where there's no greater um, devotional literature 
than Arunachas Dutipanchikam. And according to the Vaishnavas, the highest of all the um, of all the Babas is what they call the Matara Baba, the, the Baba of sweetness, of honey. Of, uh, that, that is this Baba of, but uh, is there in Akshramlai, or but that this bridal Baba, the, the, the bride seeking the union with the bridegroom. So uh, Bhagavan has, just by his example, he has shown that Advaita and Bhakti are one and the same. You cannot have Advaita without Bhakti, you cannot have Bhakti without Advaita. Bhagavan has demonstrated that. And one of the things these people say, they, they, these, um, these, uh, um, these Bhakti Vedanta people, they say, I don't want to be a honeybee, no, sorry, I don't want to be honey. I want to be the honeybee that drinks the honey. Bhagavan says, is Satchidananda jada like honey? Honey, that is, they say, honey cannot taste its own sweetness. Bhagavan says, honey can't taste its own sweetness because honey is jada. But can you say Satchidananda is jada? It, it, because it's chit, it knows itself, and itself is ananda. So it's, of, of course it's enjoying ananda. So Bhagavan, and about Another form of Vedanta is Beda, Beda, Vedanta. Beda means difference. Uh, Beda means non-difference. So difference, non-difference. They try and reconcile because there are many passages in the Vedas that seem to point to Advaita. There are many passages that seem to point to Dvaita. Advaita means non-difference. Dvaita means difference. So they try and reconcile these. But Bhagavan says very simply, if you've got differences, there's no non-difference. If you've got non-difference, there's no differences. You can't have the two together. So Bhagavan gave simple, simple hints to us, but Bhagavan won't criticize these because all these different philosophies, they're all suited to people at different levels of spiritual development. So Bhagavan was very uh, careful not to criticize Abba. He didn't criticize Islam. He didn't criticize Christianity. He didn't criticize any religion or any form of Hinduism, any form of uh, Vedanta. There are so many different interpretations of Vedanta. He didn't criticize any. He didn't criticize Buddhism. He didn't criticize Jainism. Bhagavan, as Kumar was saying, Bhagavan is very positive. He's always, he, rather than telling that others are false, he explains why this is the truth. So, um, Bhagavan is really the essence of everything. So, um, yes, there are differences, but why, why, when all these differences are there, why are there so many different paths? Why are there so many different forms of Vedanta? Why, are there, why is there yoga? Why is there Sankhya? Why is there Nyaya, Vaisaishika? Why is there Buddhism? Different forms of Buddhism, so many different. Buddhist philosophies are there, but Buddhists don't all agree among themselves. They've got widely different philosophies, like the Vedantins and Jainism. They've got different views. So there's so many different views, and so many other religions. There's, um, there's in China, there's Taoism, Confucianism. In um, in East Asia, there was um, uh, sorry, I mean in West Asia, there was uh, first Judaism, then Christianity, then Islam. Why are also, why has God allowed so many religions in this world? It's because it's suited to different people of different of different levels of spiritual maturity and different types of makeup. So 
a, a religion that appeals to one person may not appeal to another person. So there's, there's elements of truth in all these different religions. But they, because, and they're all pointing in the same direction. Ultimately, they're all pointing towards God, to that which is beyond this material world. <clears throat> so Advaita hasn't got a quarrel with anyone. Mm -hmm. All these other are suited to people at different levels of spiritual development. But the ultimate truth is, it, it, everyone says, all the other religions, they say God. They say God is the, the greatest of all. He's infinite. If God is infinite, how can anything be other than God? So ultimately, it all has to come to Advaita. Advaita is the ultimate. But others will disagree with that. They'll say, no, no. Our path is the ultimate. Okay, your path is the ultimate. Fine, we, we don't want to quarrel with anyone. But if we understand Bhagavan correctly, we will understand how fortunate we are to have been attracted to his path. That is only by his grace. Without his grace, we would not have been drawn to this path. That's why Bhagavan said, grace is the beginning, the middle, and the end. It is grace that draws us to this path. It is grace that... Um, supports us in following this path in so many ways it supports us more ways than we can understand and finally it is grace that will swallow us so according to Bhagavan it's all a matter of grace and the same grace that is guiding us is guiding each and every other jiva that's why Bhagavan said that grace is shining in all the different religions as the god of all the different religions so Bhagavan's Bhagavan's love is infinite. So you don't have to be a devotee of Bhagavan to be loved by Bhagavan. Bhagavan loves us all because he's our own reality. So whether we are Christian or Muslim or atheist or whatever we may be, Bhagavan loves us because he is our own, he is our own reality and he loves us as himself. He doesn't see all our defects. He sees us as himself. And because he sees us as himself, that enables us to see ourselves as we actually are. That is his grace. So all is his grace, ultimately. Thank, okay, you, Michael, thank you. I just have one quick follow-up question. Okay. In, in, uh, now, um, Gita, Bhagavad Gita is the crown, right? It, it has everything in it. Um, it I taters know, to all tastes. Right. And, 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 and uh, yes, it, it, it embraces all sorts of uh, lanes into itself. Um, I know Bhagwan's uh, signature is self-investigation, right? The positive that yeah. Kumar was talking about, the one that you just mentioned, you know, focusing yeah. on the, not the neti netis, not this, not this, but what is being, yeah. the focus is on being. I just have a question. Um, you mentioned that Mandoko Pinishad's uh, summary also has, similar uh you know um yeah. self-investigation thing does gita have something similar to self-investigation again after this i don't think i'll be asking questions like this i just thirsting for that information that's all mm -hmm. um does ma gita bhagavad gita not, have something similar just, or what is the difference not just similar exactly the same krishna describes the practice of self-investigation in two verses of the Gita, chapter 6, verses 25 and 26, which Bhagavan has translated as, I think, verses 27 and 28 of Bhagavad Gita Saram. The, 
but in at the end, the last half of uh, of um, uh, verse twenty five, Krishna says, "Atma samstam manakritva na kinchitapi chintayet." Fix your mind in yourself and do not think of anything else. That is self investigation, beautifully described, and in a very practical way, he says. Sane, sane, gradually, gradually, because he knows that we cannot automatically, I mean, we cannot instantaneously turn our attention back to ourselves. But because of our vasana's attention, we'll keep on going outwards. Slowly, 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 we have, to, we have to train it, bring it to that state of stillness by fixing it in ourselves and coming to that point where we cease to think of anything else. So but he's given a very, very clear and practical description of the path of self-investigation in those two verses. And he very clearly talks a Dvaita philosophy. For example, in, in chapter 2, verse 16, he says something, another, this is another verse that Bhagavan translated, I think verse 9 in Bhagavad Gita Saram. The meaning of that verse is, there is no, there is no existence of what doesn't exist. And there is no non-existence of what does exist. If we think about that, that has a very, very deep meaning. Because what that means is, if there's no existence of what exists, that means what exists can never become non-existent. There can never be a time when it didn't exist. So what actually exists is what always exists. And there's no non-existent, there's no existence of what doesn't exist. So anything that doesn't exist permanently doesn't actually exist at all. This is what Bhagavan used to say. If something exists at one time and not at another time, it doesn't really exist even when it seems to exist. So this is, the, this is one of the core principles of Advaita. There is only one thing that exists, one without a second, and that exists eternally. Everything else comes and goes. Even ego comes and goes. So it's not real. Only what exists always is real. So there's a, a lot of very pure Advaita there. But Krishna, Krishna has to cater for everyone. So he, he provides all so many different... Um, there's something for everyone in the Gita. Even if you're a, a Christian or a Muslim or a, a Buddhist or whatever you may be, you'll find something in the Gita. Oh yes, this is right. You'll, you'll find that it, it's impossible to go through the whole Gita and reject everything because there's something for every. There's probably something for atheists also there. It's such a beautiful. It's a wonderful text for Gita. Yeah. Of course, Thank we you, don't need that because we've got Bhagavan. Bhagavan is the essence of it all. But the Gita is a truly wonderful text. Right. A good question from that Sula. That is why uh, it's considered to be one of the Prastana Treya, one of the three source texts of Vedanta. The, the source texts of Vedanta are the oldest of the Upanishads, the Brahma Sutra and the Bhagavad Gita. Right. So it's such an important text. It's, a, the pras, it's one of the prasanatraya of Vedanta, but it's also got something of yoga and it's got Sankhya, it's got a little bit of everything, but all in a Vedanta-sized way. Um, just to remind um, everyone that we actually did record a video of Michael explaining the two verses, 625 and 626 um, of Bhagavad Gita. 
and I put that link in in the chat box so you can uh, so that you can uh, check out that video. Um, Thank you so much. Specifically, those two verses, one link um, in that video. Hey, and uh, then Michael, Michael to uh, Ram for the last question. Go ahead, Michael. It's going to be a response from you. Ten seconds or less would be great. the The question I have is. Uh, are you peaceful and happy most of the time? You've been doing it for 47 years. The reason, the reason for this question is, yeah, in those days, Ramana himself was there. So people had someone who was a stalwart they could look to saying, okay, actually, whatever he's teaching, he's following, it's happening. Right now, we are talking uh, in his absence about his teachings. Someone who has actually achieved that would what, what, be a source what? of strength. What did you say? You're talking in Bhagavan's absence? Uh, actually, <laughs> <laughs> physical, physical Bhagavan absence. Bhagavan himself said when, he, when they were weeping about him, but he was about to leave the body, he said, where can I go? That's right. That's Bhagavan right. is the eternal presence, the omnipresence. He is what is shiny in our heart as I am. Ariyati Tarajivara Dahabari Jugohail Aribairami Paramatuma Narunachala Ramanan. Arunachala Ramana is the Paramatma, but blissfully exists as awareness in the cave of the heart lotus of every jiva beginning from Hari. So where can he be absent? Right. That's that's right. <laughs> uh, I was purely talking from a physical standpoint, but you're right. Where can he go? Where uh, is a time or a place where Bhagavan is absent? Right. In fact, I feel he's more with us now than when he was in the body. Sadhuam used to say, so long as he was in the body, there was a subtle mire over our mind, over our eyes, because Bhagavan seemed to be limited to that form. Now he has cast off that form. How we can recognize that he is all, all pervading, omnipresent, mm -hmm. eternal, infinite. See, previously he used to shine with all his five aspects, you know, um, Satchit Ananda Nama Rupa. Now the impermanent aspects are gone, only shines. Satchit Even the Nama Rupa is available if we want it. We've got so many pictures of Bhagavan. We've got uh, Arunachala. So if we want the Nama Rupa, it's there. Right, 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 right. Well, my, my core question is, that's a good point. My core question is, um, are you peaceful and happy most of the time? Um, peace and happiness are relative terms. I would say, I believe I am far more peaceful and far more happy than I would be if Bhagavan hadn't been in my life. I cannot imagine my life without Bhagavan. So, Generally speaking, I would say, from a relatively, I am peaceful and happy. I I am supremely grateful to Bhagavan for for having. I I can't say, but Bhagavan's grace is how how Bhagavan selects worthless. <laughs> worthless people like us and draws us to him and gives us the little love that we have for him. It's, in, it's entirely his grace. So, um, yeah, how, how can we 
um, Bhagavan's path is all about happiness because Bhagavan's path is about surrender. When Bhagavan gives that analogy of the, the passenger in the train, he said, why should we suffer carrying it, the luggage on our head rather than traveling happily putting it aside? Sukumai, he says. So Bhagavan's path is the path of happiness. The more we surrender to him, the happier we will be. Thanks, Michael. That, right. that, that helps. Right. But I, Thank you, unfortunately, there's still an I, so I'm not fully surrendered to him, so I can't say I'm perfectly happy. <laughs> but I, by his grace, at least I enjoy um, uh, some degree of happiness and peace, but entirely yeah. by his grace, entirely by his grace. Thanks, Michael. Right. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Um, Sorry, went longer than we planned. Um, it's but uh, it's all worth it. <laughs> um, yes, you 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 have, you have cheated me. <laughs> Yesterday you promised to limit it to um, to <laughs> one and a half hours. One and a half hours. I just couldn't say no to to all that. <laughs> Man proposes, God disposes. God disposes. So exactly. We had our own ideas. Bhagavan had his own ideas. Right. So his ideas prevail. Thank you. Namor Bhagavate Namor 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 Namor